Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Upgrade your mindset, transform your body, uncover your purpose. Welcome to Torchbearer with Ollie Herman Taylor. Roger Woodall, Dodge, if it's all right if I call you that. Welcome yep. to the Torchbearer podcast. It's nice to be here, Ollie. Lovely to meet you. You say it's nice to be here. I'm, I'm actually, I've got to say thank you to you because we're in this amazing studio. So, um, you know, you've invited me down here. We're in your podcast studio, which is really nicely set up. And I listen to a lot of podcasts yeah. when I do research. And I often think a lot of people, they kind of fake their voices for podcasts. Yeah. So I think a lot of people try and put on that really deep kind mm. of, you know, BBC mm. voice. So what I'm hoping is that your equipment here and this nice mixer will make me sound sexier anyway. <laughs> sexy. <laughs> you, you, you never know. But um, I wanted to ask you, how did you start your day today? How did I start my day today? Uh, get up. My little boy wakes us up, little seven-year-old Alfie. Um, and the first thing I do is just say five things that I'm grateful for. And gratitude plays a huge part in my life because it brings it back to the now, slows everything down and makes you realise how lucky we all are for the things that we've currently got. Feed my boy, walk him to school. That's my favourite bit, walk him to school every morning, have a right laugh with him singing, teaching, laughing. And the first thing I do is go straight to the gym. And that's what I like to do every day. Go and hit the gym, go and have a good workout, get all the endorphins and dopamines, get all the hits that I need for my mind. Um, straight in the sauna, straight into the steam, straight for a little swim, shower, change, I'm ready for my day. And when I do that, and when I've got that in place, everything else seems to fall in place. So it's really important to me for that. And I really notice the days that I don't do that, how my mind becomes during the day compared to once I've done my training, got that over and done with and got all my hits that I actually, how my mind feels for the rest of the day. Yeah, I totally get that. I'm fascinated by morning routines. Yeah. And it's really interesting. People either have a morning routine that they've kind of experimented with or they just naturally do. Yeah. Or they've read books, you know, like the miracle morning and things, and they've kind of adopted someone else's, which is a bit, sometimes a bit box ticking. It's mm. like, you know, I've, I've got to squeeze in a meditation yeah. and I've got to squeeze in gratitude if it's not a natural yeah. thing and yeah. I've got to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. But um, other people just have a, you know, they just do it. They just naturally get up and they want to move or they want to sort of do something. So mm. I love the fact that you've got a routine. How mm. long have you had that for? Is it, is it something you've consciously kind of tried to create or is it All just- All my what, life. All my adult life. Even the gratitude bit, is that something The you... gratitude bit, it's an interesting one. The gratitude bit, actually saying it out aloud has come about in the probably last three months. Saying it out aloud, saying the five things that I am grateful for in the morning. And I love it. And is it was it the same thing? No, no, well, um... Was it just any five things that Any you... five things that I'm literally grateful for. It'd be like, I'm grateful for having a really good night's kip in a comfy bed. Yeah. You know, I'm grateful for my little boy running in and big smile on his face. I'm grateful for waking up next to my wife. I'm grateful for having real nice brekkie. I'm grateful for the sun being out today. Or I'm grateful for a load of, load of wind. Whatever it may be. It's, and it really, really balances everything. It really brings everything back into the moment. You know, there's, there's a lot of people living out there with fear of the future. There's a lot of people living with guilt from the past and holding on to things. But actually, when you bring it back to the moment, all that matters actually is today. You know, my mum always said to me, 11 minutes, 11 days, 11, 11 weeks, 11 months. You do not know what's around the corner. And that really resonated with me. I like that philosophy. Mm. You, know, you know, being present. A lot of people talk about being present, but mm. 
very few people do it. And this is the, this is the interesting thing, I think, about personal development and yeah. success and all these, this kind of, um, the traditional kind of methods is that we read a lot of information, but very few people implement it. Yeah. Very few, few people put it into practice. Yeah. So you, you hit the gym. Uh, that's, uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, see if you would come onto that naturally. So that's part of your morning routine as yeah. well. So once you've taken your little boy, Alfie, to school, yeah. then you go to the gym and typically you kind of lift weights, I think, yeah. probably. Yeah. Yeah. Is that one of the key things that makes you feel kind of unstoppable throughout the rest of the day? Because for me, I know that when I get in the gym in the morning, yeah. I can tackle anything, mm. anything that comes up, you know, tough meetings, kind of any, anything. Whereas if I don't, there's just something that's a little bit off yeah, about 100, the day. 100%, 100%. And I also get my best ideas in the gym. Nice. All my yeah. best ideas, all the businesses that I've created over the last 20 plus years have come from the ideas from the gym because it just triggers so many wonderful things in my mind. My mind is free. I'm away from my phone. I'm there to think. It really is amazing. They're in the shower, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> the shower, I don't know what it is about the shower, but I can be, I love, I like long showers. There's something about the shower that I can really be creative in, in my mind about what's, what we're going to do and how we're going to create stuff. And there's new research ideas. into that. There's, is there's, there? Yeah. I, I think basically into the fact that when you're doing things like, for me, like cutting the grass, yeah. you know, I'm um, cutting the lawn, having a shower yeah. in the gym. Cause your, your mind, you're kind of conscious. I guess the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the thinking bit is engaged yeah. with like something to keep it occupied. So you're having a shower and it's kind of automatic. And so mm. your, your mind can, the rest of your mind can wander. Mm. And I think it frees up that kind of like, almost that creative space. Yeah, definitely. You know, that it's like a phone, isn't it? Like a computer, the memory that's often taken up with stressful decisions or ru rushing around, you yeah. know, that almost gets quietened down yeah. and then you can access the, uh, the good stuff, agree. the creative stuff. Totally agree. Yeah. So you're obviously a natural entrepreneur and I don't know if you like that term or description or not, but you know, from, from listening to parts of your story and kind of understanding who you are mm. before we recorded this, you know, it seems that entrepreneurship is something that you kind of live and breathe, mm. not in the way, not in what I would call the modern way of entrepreneurship mm. where, you know, everybody's an entrepreneur, mm. but I would say in the kind of classical, like the purest way mm. where you seem to have a kind of an ease of understanding business. Yeah and businesses and how to start them, how to spot opportunities uh, and how to turn it into something. Mm. Is that how you describe yourself as like a born entrepreneur? Yeah, that's how other people describe me. Because I've never been employed, I've never had a job. Ever? Ever, 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 ever. So from a young age growing up in a pub, you are seeing lots of characters around you who are entrepreneurs, but they didn't know what the word entrepreneur was back in the 80s. Entrepreneur back in the 80s were just people who knew how to make a pound note. Yeah. You know, buy something for a quid, sell it for two quid, I'm an entrepreneur. But they, no one spoke about being an entrepreneur like that. Entrepreneur now has become this big sexy thing over the last five, six years. You know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a play for West Ham. I wanted to score the winning goal for West Ham at the FA Cup final. I thought I was going to be a footballer. You know, rock stars were rock stars. They were the, they were the creme de la creme. Then it turned to DJs in the 2000s. They were the creme de la creme. And now all of those, whether you're a rock star, DJ, footballer, professional sportsman, Every one of, one of those categories now wants to be an entrepreneur. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's become so, because it, it, it sounds sexy to be an entrepreneur, but it actually isn't a lot of the time because mm. it's hard work oh. and, you know, it can be stressful and there's risk involved and, you know, there are massive highs if, if you're good, yeah. but there are a lot of people who aren't that good. And, you know, so mm. there are big lows as well. Mm. Why do you think it's become such a kind of like sexy thing to, you know, aspire to be an entrepreneur? I think it's because you've got freedom, you're in control. You're in control of your destiny. The harder you work and the smarter you work and the more research you do into the project you're about to launch or the business you're about to launch, you're in control of everything. 
Well, it depends how much, how many hours you're prepared to put in and how much research you're prepared to do and how many contacts and doors you're going to open. And are you a good people's person? Are you there to disrupt the market? Is there a niche in that market? Can you create a niche? Is there actually a business model in what you're about to jump into? You know, there's a lot of people out there who, and there's no disrespect to people who call themselves serial entrepreneurs at the age of 21. I hate that term. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> well, how on earth they jump into that? But you know what? There's a lot of millionaires being made overnight very quickly these days due to the power of social media, due to the power of Google and what have you. Yeah. you know, we grew up without Google. We grew up without social media. So when you are setting up businesses, it's real people doing real business, having real conversations and looking each other's eye and doing deals. Hmm. And that's all that I knew as a kid. And all it's done is grown and grown and grown and grown into where I am in my 40s now with creating some wonderful businesses over the years that we're super proud of. I'm looking forward to talking about mm. those different businesses. Um, I really dislike that term, serial entrepreneur, mm. just because for me, someone like Elon Musk is like a serial entrepreneur, mm. you know, or Richard Branson or someone like mm. that. And, you know, obviously there are different levels, but just as you say, there are these, uh, you know, younger kids who are kind of billing themselves yep. as serial entrepreneurs and yep. they, they possibly aren't. So, you know, part of the Torchbearer podcast is about interesting stories mm. with torchbearers, which are people, I think, who have something to teach. They have an interesting story to share, but they also can teach some principles. And it's really important for me to be able to try and get information out for the listeners to, you know, help them do something. Mm. And so obviously, I wanted to focus on, on entrepreneurship, on business today during our conversation. We'll come back to that in a little bit, but I'd love to also understand your story because I know a little bit about it, but some people may not. Mm. So, you know, kind of, um, can you give us the highlights, you know, the kind of, uh, how you got exposed to business and how you grew up and what, what kind of um, set the conditions for you to start running your own businesses. Yeah, yeah. I grew up living above pubs in London, which is a very different upbringing to 99.9% .9 of kids out there. And I absolutely loved it, but I didn't know any different. You know, so growing up above pubs and it was a really cool pub as well on the River Thames and we had a nightclub next door to us. So dad's pub there was a real buzzy pub. There'd be a thousand people coming through Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It was the feeder pub to the nightclub next door. You know, I was exposed to, uh, they were called bouncers back in the day who are now security guards and or, yeah. or, or doormen or whatever you, and lots went on. And there was so much that I saw that looking back as an adult now, no kids should see the stuff that I saw going on. So it was uh, like a kind of... Uh a different kind of education on that side of things, apart from school. You know, Absolutely. You, got, you got to witness a lot of things. Absolutely. That... I saw everything. I saw everything. You've got to remember, we're growing up with a lot of characters, whether they're working your doors, a lot of people we were growing up with a lot older than you. I was a 10-year-old on the door. I was the son of the of the landlord. Everyone respected dad. Dad, back in the day, was a, a bodybuilder and he was a main face around the town and people knew who he was around London, etc. And you are seeing lots of stuff, seeing some great stuff, some lots of love. You're seeing alcoholism, you're seeing toxic environments, you're seeing, you're seeing everything. And I saw a lot of people earning money. And living above a pub in a, a two-bed flat was exciting. There was never a dull moment. You know, I had no restrictions on me. Mum and dad were very free. With, I was kind of going to bed when I wanted and I was hanging around the doors and seeing the doorman, the bouncers then buying and selling whatever they were selling and seeing stuff. And it was just a concoction of everything thrown in with lots of different characters. So you just basically like, you were exposed to being in the pub. You, you know? become streetwise very quickly. Yeah. That's what it is. You become streetwise very, very quickly. I understood business. I understood business at a young age. I understood how to run a pound note. And it kind of grew from that sort of, you know, I started living in pubs at the age of four. 
Yeah. You know, but I remember the ages of 10, I was, I, I realized it was a nightclub next door and I'd go to that nightclub, that club, nightclub in, uh, in Kingston would have a thousand people in there. I knew dad was a feeder pub between, you know, they would leave between 10 and 11 and go and queue up a, a huge queue. I'd go to the local, I'd go to the manager of the nightclub every Saturday and buy 20 tickets off him for a pound. This is back in the eighties. I would then take these 20 tickets and go and sell them in our pub between 10 and 11 on a Saturday night for two pound. So I'd earn my pound, but my tickets would get them queue jump. So everyone was winning. So I knew to create win-win situations from a very, very young age. But £20 in half an hour's work for me as a 10-year-old, that was jackpot. Yeah. You know, I was literally getting all these coins and going to dad behind the bar at the end of it going, can I swap it for a 20 quid note? And so something clicked. Like, something clicked. Yeah. And for me, it's about creating win-win situations. But I knew early doors that there was loads of walk-by trading up, up, loads of people coming in, loads of people coming down to the River Thames, loads of people going up to the nightclub next door. And we had a big WH Smith at the back of the pub. And WH Smith back then used to do these wonderfully big toys like this. And anything was a little chip in it. They would just put in these big skips. So me and my best mate, Chris, would go skip diving. He'd hold onto my ankles. I'd go into the big uh, skips, pull them out, and we'd set up a table out the back. And all the walk-by trade would be selling these big toys. You know, that was that was on Saturday afternoons. And that would also create a sort of Maybank holiday at the front of the pub. We'd go to the cash and carry, and we'd buy two, three hundred hot dogs, all the ice creams. And we'd, I'd be waiting on the weather, Maybank holiday, I'd set up a stall, and if it was sunny, I'd sell all the ice creams, and if it wasn't sunny, I'd sell all the hot dogs. And I'd come out £600 as a 10-year-old. Yeah, after that's paying, amazing. After paying your mum and dad back and, and taking whatever you didn't sell back to the cash and carry. I was around cash. I was around lots of cash as a young kid. You know, and it was all cash back then. So what, what motivated you? Because, you know, obviously I understand, you know, you innately knew that you could go next door, you could get tickets for the nightclub, you yeah. could, um, you know, your dad's pub was a feeder pub. So you could, you could see how it worked. You mm. could see the kind of mechanics of it. But as a 10 year old, what motivated you? Like, why did you want to make that 20 quid or that 600 quid? Was it just, um, just cause it was fun. It was a challenge. It was a game or is it, you know, what, what was it behind it? It was the buzz of making money. Okay. It was the buzz. Also in my, also in the back of back of my mind is that when I went to stay with other kids at their parents' house, they would have a calm house. They would have the mum and dad cooking dinner together. They would have the big, thick, comfy carpets. They would have the big, comfy sofas. It would be silent. It'd be calm. Come back into our madhouse. You know, there's a nightclub next door. My bedroom, there's one thin wall between my bedroom and the nightclub. Every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, everyone's stamping their feet and the DJ and they're on the mic going, come on, Eileen, to 2 a.m. So my sleep patterns were all over the place. You know, I was going to bed at 11 after earning my money or going to bed at sort of 10 o'clock in the midweek before school. And on the weekend, I was up with the doorman and, and them taking me to nightclubs at the age of 11, 12, 13, dropping me back at three, four in the morning because they knew my parents knew that we'd be safe with them. And it was just a very, very different world. And it was looking back at it, it was I started to earn money and I realized that I loved creating win-win situations. And then I started to earn more and more money going, oh my God. Then I realized that I wasn't a spender, I was a saver. I would only spend a percentage of what I was earning. So I was, for me, it was about saving all this money because all I dreamt about was living in a house. Okay, so that was, that was a big motivation for you, huge, buying a house. Huge, 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 huge. All I wanted to be is in silence. So you wanted to, because you, you talked about the buzz, the buzz of making money yeah. and the buzz of that young entrepreneurship. Yeah. And I guess that you grew up obviously in, you know, this big pub, it was like a, a, a popular pub. Very. You know, thousand people, you said, coming Absolutely. through over DJs, the... DJs, doorman, it was, you know. Yeah, so yeah. it was like, a, it was a sort of 
an up environment, you know, buzzing mm. environment the whole time. So you obviously kind of thrived on that. Yeah. And obviously that's a pattern that's come into your life and yeah. into your different businesses, you know, as you go forwards. Yeah. As well as craving it, you you also wanted the opposite. You wanted that silence. You wanted that quiet house Absolutely. and that kind of like sanctuary. Yeah. 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 But you got to remember growing up, yeah, underneath my bedroom, there's big kitchens. So the smells coming up through the kitchens would be chili con carne, shepherd's pie, fish and chips into the into my bedroom. And then it would be the nightclub next door. So I never had a comfy good night's kip. Yeah. I never really, I'm not, I'm not here complaining about it because it made me who I am today and I wouldn't change the world because I learned so much. I learned people's mannerisms. I knew how people move and how they looked into each other's eye and a handshake was a handshake and, a, you know, a deal was a deal and I learned all of that. But going back, I just wanted that calmness. I wanted that uh, tranquility because we had, so, so, so for example, I'd go to bed at 11 after I had my money. I wouldn't go to sleep to two o'clock because the nightclub next door banging music at four o'clock in the morning. So at three o'clock, everyone would come out the nightclub and we had two Alsatians and a, a Doberman that were our guard dogs. They would be barking and it would all be kicking off outside with people leaving the club. Again, that was just memories, just more noise. And then at five o'clock, you'd have the Drayman turn up. So the Drayman bring all the barrels of lager. And the, I don't know if you heard big barrels rolling across concrete. Yeah, it's a noise. That would make up more noise. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, that's five o'clock. That would wake up our pet monkey. The pet monkey would wake up our cockatoo. Our cockatoo would wake up all the budgery guards dad had. It was a madhouse. So you had, you had quite a collection of animals by the sounds of <laughs> we, <you> had, <laughs> we had a pet monkey. <laughs> what sort of monkey was it? It was a squirrel monkey. Okay, yeah. So it's about yeah. that size. It was a squirrel monkey. Remember the two-bed flat? Dad, dad growing up was an East End London, East End boy done good. My mum was a Man Manchester girl done good. Before we went into the pub game, they were in the casino games. Dad was a croupier. Mum was a Playboy bunny in the in the top uh, casinos in, in, in Uptown in Mayfair. Um, and then they all of a sudden, you know, Dad loved his animals. So his way of doing it was, I'm in a pub. There's lots of toxicity there. It earns really good money. But he wanted calmness of animals so this was a like a, a release for him hugely. you know to have animals and to have that contact huge, with kind of nature hugely huge and his way was well you know i'd have animals in in the in our flat above the pub and we had a pet monkey and we had a cockatoo called bubbles and the bubbles were saying i'm forever blowing bubbles because we're all west Ham fans so my, i've been woken up the whole time be five o'clock six o'clock seven o'clock the monkey would wake up the cockatoo the cockatoo would wake up the budgery guy and then it was off to school again and then when i was at school that's when I was really earning a good pound note every day. At school? At school. What were you doing at school? There's three, four hundred kids at school. I was doing haircuts for three quid. And if they wanted a tram line on the side, it was an extra pound. So you were taking like your clippers into school with 100%. you? 100%. At lunch break, you were... 100%. Okay. And then there was, uh, they might, I had all the panini stickers. I don't know if you remember the panini stickers. I was yeah. buying and selling them, buying and selling them. And yeah. it was just all about how I could create win-win situations. Um, but the money got bigger and bigger as I grew older. So as a 10 year old up to 17, 18, I would, you know, there was times, there was loads of different businesses I was doing at school, but that was to me, I was just thinking, oh my God, I'm going to school. All I want to do is play sport. I found it very difficult to, to learn in class. I knew it wasn't for me. I love business and I love sport. So I just put my energy into sport and business because you grow up very quickly in a pub. I was around adults the whole time. You know, I was always around adults. So you learn a lot. Mm. Um, and when I was at school, I really just didn't understand jumping in from a history lesson to a scripture lesson to a physics lesson to a chemistry lesson. I just thought, this is mad. This is really not me. And I was very fortunate that my parents worked the backsides off to put me into a private school. So I was living a double life. 
You know, I was coming home, living the life I was living, and then going to a private school where dad and myself would walk to school every day. Uh, dad was a bodybuilder back then. I don't know if you remember the sort of the bodybuilding tracky bees they had and yeah. we'd walk to school every day and the vest the ve yeah he didn't really wear the vest <laughs> thing, but he wore the baggy stuff and and then we'd, we'd walk to school every day i'd have my west ham rucksack on and we'd have the two-hour station we'd walk to school and drop him off and everyone loved dad you know in the 80s good looking bloke honest all the all the mums loved him and we were going there and it was all of a sudden going to a, a school that had great facilities and it was all about sport so i put all my energy into playing sport it was all about sport 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 and I knew from an early age that I just didn't understand. I couldn't sit still in class. I was, I was, I wasn't a bad kid, but I was the one who was always wanting to muck around and have a laugh. Did you find the lessons boring, like the structured lessons? Hundred percent. Yeah, and you just couldn't engage with what? I just found it very difficult to engage. I engaged well in in my sport. You know, it was that rugby, the cricket, the football, the squash, all the sports we grew up in the eighties and nineties, and that's what I put my energy into, and I ended up becoming fairly good at that side of things and um got sports scholarship to go to the next school and the next school had more kids in and i was thinking oh my god then i realized all these kids on a on a friday would get their pocket money so i'd go to the uh, blackbush market back in the day and i'd buy a hundred timberland jumpers at a tenner and i'd go back into school and sell them to all the kids for 30 quid you know and if you're selling earning earning 20 quid on each jumper and you're selling you know 70 80 it's a lot of money it's a grand a week yeah so you were doing really well basically compared to probably everybody else at your school you were you know obviously spotting these business opportunities and yeah. you're making really good money yeah what do you think about labels like what i mean as in not designer labels but i mean the labels that they would give kids now who probably have similar characteristics to you who talented at business kind of understand they can see the building blocks maybe not great in a classroom not because they're not talented or intelligent just don't engage with the material don't engage with the style of teaching great at sport you yeah. know nowadays a lot of kids get labeled very quickly yeah. you know, it's like they can't pay attention you know adhd all of these sorts of mm. things and i think it's a real shame because i think people just have really different learning styles yeah, they do. and kind of skill sets and talents and i think the education system lets a lot of people down because it tries to stick everyone into this yeah this sort the of education box. system is backward the education system is so outdated on so many levels, whether you're at school or a university, they're 30, 40 years behind. Yeah. If you, if I'm getting an E in physics and I'm getting an A in sport or a B in geography, concentrate on those two. What, what, do you want me to get a D in physics carrying on? It's just not for me. It shouldn't be for me. What, what The whole country has got too many average people in. These days, if you, you in business, if you're good at something, they say, put all your energy into that. Yeah, well, that's how it should be at schools, I believe. So, like, kind of focus on your strengths. I believe so. I really do believe so. And um, you know, back in our day, if you were dyslexic, you were like, "Oh, he's dyslexic. Oh, what's up with him? Has he got a problem? Oh, he's a bit weird." Because no one knew what dyslexia was back then. Dyslexia now it's like, "Oh man, he's dyslexic. He's amazing. How creative is he? How cool is he? God, he's got a different mindset. God, he's optimistic." Because that's just the way it is the way the world has gone you know and it's just a different way of looking at things and agree. a different way of navigating things and there seem to be like a lot of people when you when you look into business stories and people who are successful at all levels yeah a surprising amount of people are dyslexic yeah. you know uh, my brother's successful in different businesses he's he was really dyslexic mm. at school you know um mm. so i think it, i think it's interesting in terms of like kind of running with your strengths that's obviously mm. something that you've you've done so you learn quickly that you know a lot of the subjects that you were learning weren't really for you. So you kind of stuck to your lanes of really good sport and yeah. then looking for kind of entrepreneurial opportunities. Yeah. What was your sort of first business that you felt was like a, 
not that any of them weren't real businesses, but what was the first one you felt was like a really, you know, kind of a proper business yeah. that you, you could sort of stay in and you could grow for a bit? Because yeah. so far you'd had kind of lots of opportunities like haircutting yeah. and Timberland jumpers and yeah. the nightclub tickets. What yeah. was the... It's when I went to uni, really. So all of those ones growing up is all about earning a pound note. Yeah. That was all the stem for my proper business life. How does it work? How can I create win-win? How can I make you happy? How can it make me happy? How can everyone win here? How can we look each other and shake each, hand, each other's hand and do a deal? You know, I loved all that. But that was the stem for me growing up into moving into proper business, I would say, at the age of when in my second year at university. You know, I went to Loughborough Sports University. I didn't have the grades to get in. I didn't do A-levels, but I got in there through sport and through through those kind of routes. And I knew at the time, you know, your 18-year-old kid at school was, was playing uh, Wasps rugby. And the next step, people saying, you've got to go to uni now. Finish school, you've got to go to uni. Well, what's the uni about? I don't like education. I don't want to do any more education. I want to earn a pound. No. And the school teachers, the sports teachers, you've got to go to Loughborough. I went there. It's all about sport. You're going to love it. So I went there. And it was amazing. It was like butlins on steroids. <laughs> it was all sport, sport, every fairly decent sports from around the UK from different parts but all went to Loughborough and that's so, when I really blossomed and turned and turned my business mindset into creating a proper business. So you, you basically got the opportunity to just do sport at university for three years. Yeah, I did PE sports science. Yeah. I did a rugby season in New Zealand. I travelled the world for a year, came back and did PE sports science. I did a six months playing rugby in New Zealand, come back, did a PE sports science degree and when I was there I was thinking, I don't like this. I didn't do A-levels. You had to have an A, A and a B in physics and something else and something else. I just didn't get my head around it. But I thought, come on, just stick with this. Because all I was thinking was, I've gone from school from 400 kids. I've just gone to campus and there's 12,000 students. My eyes were just cha-ching. And that's where it all stemmed from. And my mum always said to me when I went up there that first year, she said, make sure you earn a pound amount of everyone up here. <laughs> and that sticks with me today. So that was basically you, one of your th first thoughts. You went into this bigger pond. 100%. Let's say, and you were like, okay, right, how can I create opportunities, win-win opportunities, yeah. but also make money? Yeah, 100%. These yeah. students were getting student loans and student grants. It's expensive. <laughs> it, it's expensive going to university, isn't it? Especially if it you're not now. like super engaged. It yeah. is now. It wasn't back then. But, you know, the government were giving everyone free money. So I was thinking, my God. This is unbelievable. And I go and do, play rugby up there. You become a face on campus. I was saying all these halls of residence there, there was 500 in that hall with 700 in that hall. I was thinking, what can I sell to everyone here? Sports campus. Right, back to selling. Right, let's bring up 500 Adidas hoodies. That's what I did. And went around the halls and sold them for all for 30 quid, but buy them for a tenner, sold them all for 30 quid. Literally out of a bag. Just like, Out of a bag. Yeah. Have a big black bin liner bag going into the halls, everyone loving it, everyone around campus wearing Adidas. And you've got to remember back in 95, there wasn't the free, there wasn't the, the Adidas's everywhere and the Under Armours and it wasn't easy to go and buy all that stuff. And it was expensive as well. And it was if you expensive. Went, yeah. Yeah. Paid so full ticket. I was earning fantastic money and that was my first year at uni. And the second year at uni, I started to get into events. Mm. And that's where my events career started in 1999, it started. And that's all I've done. Not all I've done, but I've, I've put on 1,500 events. And that's a lot of events. Festivals. Yeah. That's a lot of events. Mm. I want to I come back to that, obviously, yeah. because that is a sort of turning point for you where you, you know, you're now in events and you spent, I think you said 10 years maybe in 
kind of night, nightclub style events, yes. student events, and yep. then you now do festivals yes. and you do the Bournemouth Sevens in particular, yes. which we'll, we'll come on to. And I'm really looking forward to talking yeah. about, but I want to take a little detour and just yeah. talk about rugby for a minute. Yeah. Because obviously that's a huge theme and a big part of your life, I think yeah. still yeah. with what you do for business. Yeah. So it, had you always played rugby throughout school? Because yeah. you were good at sport, you played lots of sports, yeah. but was rugby the, the main one? The yes, it was. Yeah. 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 And when you came to Loughborough, you still played rugby. And then you, yep. you ended up playing to quite a high level, I think, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did okay. Yeah. Were you, were you a, like a semi-pro player? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, went to play with Leicester Tigers Yeah. at a young age. I think it was 21 when I came back from New Zealand after that rugby season. And there's Bob Dwyer there and he just won the World Cup, the coach for Australia. He was the new coach of Leicester Tigers. And Leicester Tigers at the time were the, were the creme de la creme. Um, but I had imposter syndrome. It, that, how, how did that show up? I obviously understand what it means. You know, a lot of people kind of understand what it means. But how did you feel? Like, can you explain how you felt and like, why you felt like an imposter? Well, you go, when you go into an environment where you're playing with your heroes, Martin Johnson, Neil Back, Lewis Moody, the list just goes on. These are like World Cup winners. These are your heroes. All of a sudden you're like, oh my God, you're going to come and train with these guys? Oh my God, you're going to play with Dean Richards and Joel Stransky and Austin Healy? And my God. Surely I'm not good enough for this lot. Surely I'm not, I haven't got the skill set for this. Surely, but someone's seen, the, someone's seen an opportunity in you to bring you across and say that you are good enough. But day-to-day -day training, it was seriously physical. You're, you know, I was still a kid. Mm. 21, you're still, you're still, doesn't matter what anyone says, you're still a man, but you're going in training with absolute beasts of men where it's physical violence that's allowed in training. You know, it's legalised violence, essentially, and you're going in there and it's, crunch and hit and smash and and it was dog eat dog because it had just turned professional in 1996 these boys had gone from playing for nothing to all of a sudden getting contracts and whatever and you were banging the mix with them and you're there thinking looking around going am i good enough am i fast enough am i good enough? and that does play a part and i, I think there'd be a lot of people who would probably say the same yeah i'm sure so it yeah. was kind of intimidating you know meeting heroes meeting your heroes meeting these kind of World famous players. One thing and I was, one thing interesting, I was never intimidated. You never intimidated. I was, you just, yeah, I, I was never intimidated because I grew up around adults. I grew up around lots of naughty characters, some big hard men, some people have written books now on whatever they've done. I was never intimidated in that way. I was intimidated. I was in uh, imposter syndrome. I go, am I good enough to okay. be here? And that's the only time I've ever had that. And I guess at, the t at that time, you know, it, it was a full time commitment. If you wanted to, take that seriously i'm not sure you did take it seriously because you got, got to semi-professional level mm. which is an amazing achievement mm. but you have to dedicate yourself because obviously there's the training there's the nutrition there's the Absolutely. stuff you do off the field mm. but then there's the recovery as well because you know as you say it's it's like legalized violence yeah. you know you're you're playing hard and you're getting hurt yeah and other people are getting hurt and so you know it's a full-time job isn't mm. it like mm. getting ready for that preparing for matches while doing your degree while doing your degree and then also because you just had this natural built-in business yeah you know it's not something you could switch off so i guess you came to a point where you had to make a decision yeah between a career in sport and a career in business and mm. cl clearly business won but you know sport is still there yeah but maybe you know i'm sure you still play but you don't you don't play in the way you thought as a career i don't play anymore i stopped that moment really like yeah. a like a switch overnight you just made the decision i got i got a contract so I, all i wanted to do was play put the leicester tiger shirt on and i ended up playing rory underwood's testimonial at welford road yeah he's england's top scorer, try scorer ever with dean richards my number eight me at scrum half playing against michael liner and that was it for me. That was the creme de la creme. I then identified that when I was at university, I was thinking, I'm moving into my second year. After selling all the Adidas stuff and earning a fortune, that, say a fortune, 
as a student, it was a lot of money. Yeah, well, it was you a know, fortune a, for a most, gra- most a grand students. a week or whatever it was. It was it was phenomenal, and this was back in nineteen ninety seven, I think it was, or whatever year it was. And then it was like my mum always said, a "Pound a man, right? Okay, if I go to the local nightclub on a Wednesday night, there's a thousand students in there. I was one of the main faces on campus, being a rugby boy, and uh, that nightclub was charging two pound. I went to the nightclub owner, said." I reckon I can put 2,000 people in here. I reckon I can get people here. Said at 11 o'clock, I can push them to 10 o'clock. So you're going to get more on the bar spend. But how about we charge three quid? You keep two quid and I keep a quid. And they agreed to it. That was it. So I was walking in straight away to a thousand pound cash a week without doing anything. Then it was like, right, how am I going to get more people there? So then I went on campus and it was all flyers and posters, flyers and posters, tie up all the social sex of the halls, tie up all the, uh, get on board all the sports teams, sports captains with VIP cars, got them jump the queue jump, looking after people, creating win-wins. And all of a sudden we got this nightclub and we got it up to 2,000 people every single week. Every week? Every that's, single Wednesday. That's a lot of students, it's isn't it? It's a lot of students. Yeah. So all of a sudden we're doubling. They were taking maybe 20 grand on the bar. All of a sudden they're taking 40 grand on the bar. So they loved you. They loved me because it was a win-win. They weren't losing any money on the door. I was just putting a pound on it. The students were loving it because we were putting the entertainment on, driving them earlier, getting there earlier. And it was just, it was was great, great times. And that was in my second. I thought, oh my God, I'm onto something here. This is the the way forward. So at the same time, because at the start of the year of September, obviously being a London London lad, I also knew there was a nightclub in Wandsworth and it was called the Theatre. There was an old theatre, it held a thousand people. And at the time, it's called Liquid. And me and my best mate went and got that deal and said, let us open on a Tuesday night, you're closed. We'll bring all the Roehampton students who are at University of Surrey, we'll put them in there. We'll take all the door and we're going to charge a fiver. After all our costs, there was another grand there each. So no no one was doing this at the time no one. in the way that you were doing it. So no you, you literally, you spotted this opportunity yeah. and then you quite quickly leapt on it. Yeah. So you got those first nights up and running and yeah. then you, you thought, right, okay, let's get more people into the first venue. Yep. Now let's get another venue. Yep. And Liquid was one of the proper clubs, wasn't it? Amazing. You know, the kind of, um, you know, the because this was the golden era, yes. wasn't it? Like the 90s. 90s of, of, and the of, noughties of nightclubs. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, I think a, a lot of people have maybe fond memories or, yeah. or maybe no yeah, memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No memories probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, I think it's a, it's a, a yeah. haze of about 10 years. Yeah. You know, you really leapt on this. You kind of created a category yeah. of these student nights, didn't yeah. you? So it was getting the students into good clubs. And then, you know, it's that win-win theme again. So you're taking clubs that maybe are closed and then yeah. you're getting them to open up on a night. You're making them a lot of money. Yeah. So you're making a lot of people happy because you're making the students happy because yeah. they're having fun and, you know, the businesses are making money. Yeah. And then in the middle, you're you're doing well out of it as well. Mm. Now, so obviously there's the entrepreneurship side, there's the money side, there's the business side. But one thing that I seem to pick up from you is experience. Mm. And I think that it seems to be really important from just looking at the kind of events that you run and listening to you talk about them, mm. that you really, you really want to create a good experience yeah. for people. You know, it, it, how important is that to you to just make sure that people have a you know, really amazing experience? The most. It's the most important factor. It's the most important factor for me is the experience of what people get when they are part of your brand and we can talk about brand later. I think brand is the most important, one of the most important things, but the yeah. experience of that customer's journey when they know about your event, they know what, you know, I ended up in my third year, we were doing three grand a week cash every single week. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's- That's just in 1999. Yeah. Every single week. Yeah, like work. And then when I finished, and that was the point when I said, I've, I'm just going to stop rugby. Because when I finished uni in 2000, it's like, I can't train on a Tuesday and a Thursday and, and play on a Saturday. I want to take and scale this business up. And I ended up scaling it up to 12 
parties every single week in all the major nightclubs around the UK from Manchester, Birmingham, Leicester, Oxford, Cambridge, Bournemouth, Brighton, couple in London. The list just went on and on and on. And we scaled this up. So we were the pioneers of the student nights. So we'd go into cities, set up teams of people, and we couldn't be everywhere. They were only Monday to Thursday. So I have three on a three on a Monday, three on a Tuesday, three on a Wednesday, and three on a Thursday, say. You can't be everywhere. You know, you're dealing with a lot of cash. You're dealing with trust. Mm. You're dealing with the head doorman making sure he's on the clicker. You're dealing with people on the tills taking the money. And there was a lot of trust there, you know. But we were earning really good money. But also the club owners were earning really good money. Also, all the doormen were earning really good money because they were closed on the nights we were opening. Did it feel like a business? It might sound like a silly question, but, you know, you obviously loved it. Yeah. You obviously enjoyed this. You know, you spoke, one of the first things you spoke about is the buzz, the buzz of making money. Mm. But not just making money for the sake of it, but just, you know, like doing deals. Yeah. You know, like keeping people happy, creating experiences. So you loved all that side. Did it feel like a business? Was it fun? Obviously, it was hard work. I didn't know any different. So it just felt like normal to I you. was traveling around the country doing 30,000 miles a year, staying in hotels Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, just finishing uni, scaled up with my best mate, Chris. And he was in do it, dealing with Manchester and three others. I was driving somewhere else, staying in a hotel, waking up the next day, going to the nightclub, staying in a hotel. And then on Thursday, we would drive back to home. Right. Okay. And at that time, it was Clapham and Brixton. And that was the time when you would look at what an amazing week you've had. Make sure you're saving lots. Yeah. And then for us in our 20s, we'd go and party Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So it ended <laughs> in someone up else's being, club. In someone else's <laughs> club. So it ended up being, we were in clubs six nights a week. Yeah. Which isn't conducive. But in your 20s, it was amazing. Yeah. So you were living living the life. With the nights, so not the nights where you kind of were partying yourself, the nights you were running. Uh, you know, I don't want to spend too, too long here because I've got loads of stuff I want to ask yeah. you. But um were you in all of the nights that you were running? Were you there while the yeah, night was always, on? I'm fully yeah. hands on. Even my festivals now, I'm proper, fully hands on. Because you want the details. You're interested in, in the, the details. Detail. You want them all to be right. Yeah. Attention yeah. to detail for me is one of my skill sets, you know, and I haven't got every single skill set. The skill sets that I have got, I've really pushed on with those. And uh, I just want to, like, I want you to just bring it to life for a minute. Like, yep. you know, so that golden era, 90s, noughties, yep. some of the biggest clubs. Yeah. What were these like? Was it just a load of people going in and getting pissed? What did you no, do? No, student to- nights. So basically we would go and say, right, we'd have a Wednesday night and we'd put entertainment on. And back then it was your Big Brother characters. You know, they're called influencers these days who were on telly. But back then Big Brother was the first sort of yeah, reality. reality TV thing. And all of a sudden we're like, hold on a minute. Okay, let's plan six weeks ahead. Let's put um, a, a DJ on a named DJ. Let's put a big brother character on the following week. Let's make a big fancy dress the following week. Let's make, and all of a sudden the students were like, what on earth is this? We've got something laid on, laid on a plate for us. This is amazing. So you had themes. And, themes yeah. and lots of entertainment. And, and you kept on changing it up and like to keep people interested. And absolutely. Stuff. Putting yeah. fire people out on the front of the door with really cool stilts and people giving out free shots in the club and yeah. sexy girls running around in hot pants and, and tight tops and taking photos of people and photos would then be uploaded to our website because you've got to remember in 2000, it was a dot-com boom. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden we're like, Websites? What's a website? Okay, let's build a website. Okay, before we build a website, we've got to create a brand. So we created a brand called popyourcherry.com. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah? Good Which for is a student night. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So what we did was, I don't know if you know the Pasha logo. Yeah, I remember. Two it. cherries. Yeah. We got the Pasha logo and created popyourcherry.com. So we all of a sudden, we had a website and everyone thought we were the bee's knees. We thought we were the bee's knees because we had a website. And there was a real clever friend of ours who was really geeky and into computers. And he created this thing whereby you could 
upload photos onto our website. Oh, so wow. we would take the cameras. They're not the cameras you've got today. You've got to remember, there's no social media back in 2000. We'd get the cameras, to, the cameras, and then you would take 200 photos, would upload them at three o'clock in the morning. It would take about four hours to upload. And then all of a sudden, when the students wake up in the morning, they'll go onto the website to look for their photos. So it's kept people on the website. So it's about this experience again. And like, you know, you mentioned brand before, and I definitely want to talk mm. about brand because, um, you know, it's been a big part of my life. I had my first business in my um, early 20s was a clothing company. And, yeah. you know, I grew up loving those, you know, snowboarding, yeah. skateboarding, surf yeah. brands. I just like love them. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to have my own brand. Yeah. And so I just started tinkering around. And I, did, I, set, I set one up and, you know, managed to kind of get a business going for seven or eight years yeah. making snowboarding outerwear. And, I think ever since then or before, when I was at school, I remember just doodling like um, like my own logos yeah, and brands. Brilliant. And there's something about brand that's, you know, not many people understand, but you mm. seem to naturally understand how important brand is because brand is not just um, a logo mm. that you slap on something, which is what a lot of businesses do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's everything. Yeah. It's like the smell and the taste and the colours and the experience mm. and, you know, the whole, ex the whole experience. Yeah. And I, I think so... And it's obviously a, a, another theme for you is creating brands mm. that, you know, kind of give people what they what they want. Mm. I, I want to ask you a specific question. I love to give actionable advice to people. So a lot of people who listen to my podcast, I know they either have like a side hustle, mm. people call it, like a small business, mm. but a lot of them work a nine to five job, mm. you know, they, that they probably don't really like. Majority of people. Majority of people, yeah. yeah. So most people, you know, some people hate their job. Most mm. people don't really like their job. Mm. They're kind of trapped in, you know, the rat race, yeah. if you like. And they're not very happy. They're probably not earning as much money as they would like. Or if they are, they still, you know, want, they want to do something different. And a lot of people would like to set up a business. Yeah. They'd like to start something. And there are loads, there are endless books out there. You know, mm. you can read books till the cows come mm. home. You can listen to all of these podcasts. And it feels overcomplicated. It is overcomplicated. There's so much to learn. There's so many different principles. And I think this people get this like paralysis by analysis. They don't want to, they're scared of starting because they don't want to do something wrong. Whereas what I get from you and, and people I've spoken to you like you is that you have maybe a simpler view of business mm. and how it works and how it should work. So I listened to a few podcast episodes where you're talking about business and you mentioned something about being naive. Yeah. You know, when you set up certain types of business, you you felt really naive and thank God for it because mm. you, you probably didn't know what could go wrong. Mm. And it really resonated with me because when I set up that clothing company, I was in my 20s, I didn't have a clue. I wasn't even a designer. I just made everything up. And I remember pitching my stepdad, who was a property developer, and my brother. And I, I wanted to get the business going. I needed to order some blank t-shirts and I wanted to borrow five grand. Mm. And they kind of did a bit of a dragon's den on me in the kitchen. And um, they gave me a real grilling and basically said, it's too competitive. We don't think you're going to make it. You've got no experience. So no. And uh, I was really gutted, but it kind of lit something up in me, which was like, well, screw that. I'm just going to- Watch make this space. Yeah, watch yeah. this space. We're going to make it work. And thankfully it was, you know, it went, went pretty well. But what does that mean to you? I mean, I love the way you said that, like being naive. How did that help you with the businesses that you've started? You know, Na Naivety is a wonderful thing. Naivety is a gift. No one talks about this. I love no. this. Like literally no one mm. would say that. Naivety is a gift. One of the nicest why? gifts why? anyone could ever give me. What, what, give anyone. Why, why is it a gift? Because you, you're not doing it like everyone else does it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the simplest way I can put it. So you're going out and you're learning for yourself. Yeah, I'm not copying anyone. You're just going to do it. Go and do it. Go and learn it. You know, I was drilled in for a young age from my mum and my dad. If you want to go and do something, go and do it. So just go and have a go. Have a go. Yeah. But and do it, your homework. Yeah. Just, do your homework. There's, enough, there's not enough people out there. For me, if you're asking... What I do, I do my homework more than anyone 
So I'm going to, I want to come on to this specifically because mm. people now call this like due diligence, you mm. know, and things like this. But basically it's just... Let's no- get rid of the jargon. This whole world is caught up in all these books telling you to do this, you do that and jargon this and jargon. It's simple business. Keep it simple. So, so here we go. Here's the challenge then because I wanted to... This is what I wanted to ask you basically. If you, if you had to or you were asked to go and teach entrepreneurship or like business, whatever you want to call it, and you had to keep it as simple as possible, what sort of key principles would you teach people? What key things would you get someone to think about? Let's say that scenario where someone wants to leave their nine to five job. They've got an idea for a business. They're a bit scared about making the leap. You know, what kind of like advice would you give them that they're not going to find in the books yeah. that's jargon free, yeah. that, that's real? Yeah. Firstly, what I would say, if you're in a nine to five job that you don't, that doesn't make you happy, you've got to leave at some point. But I wouldn't leave straight away. I put your soldiers in a row. I would do spend every hour that you're not at work doing homework and research into the business that you want to set up as a side hustle. That's the first thing I would do because you've got to understand, can this business model work? Okay, I'm going to take a drop in salary as soon as I, as soon as I can make this work. Let me start selling. Let me start speaking to people. But you're going to have to put some serious hours in. You know, people go to work stressed. You know, okay, you're on 70 grand. Well done. 60 grand, well done, 40 grand, whatever it is, people spend beyond their means. And then you got caught in the horrible trap. Oh, I've got a car on tick. Oh, I've, uh, I've got a big mortgage around my head. I've got, I've now got a, a wife and kids and I've got all this to say. That's a really horrible trap to get into. And, and if, I don't know what age group people are in, but if you're in your 20s, you've got 10 years to have, try every single thing and give it a go. When you get in 30s, people are looking at marriage and kids and what have you. But if you're going to work, not happy, something's got to change. How are you going to change that? You've got a skill set that every year that you go on in business, your skill set is your skill set. And you might be able to flip over into another cult, uh, another company, which might have a better culture. That's one way of resolving it, I guess. But if you want to do something that you go, you know, everyone in, everyone in this world, 99% of people look and go, I had an idea. I had an idea. That was my idea 10 years ago. I wouldn't want to be that person in 10 years time going, oh, I wish I'd done that idea. I'm stuck in my job now because I've got so many bills to pay. Oh, I could have, I could have done that. I should have done that. If you've got an idea, fucking act upon it now. Act upon it. Do your homework. Let people know what your idea is. Tell lots of people. You'll get your feedback from that. Don't listen to everyone. Don't listen to your mum and dad. Don't listen to your brother. Don't listen to people around you because they'll always say, oh, it's a great idea. There's not many people who would go, no, that definitely won't work. That's shit. That's shit. That <laughs> definitely won't work because they don't want to upset you. Yeah. You know, so don't take advice from people who are super close to you. But if you genuinely believe in something and you genuinely want to make this move, you've got to set up a little plan of making that move to get away from your job because you're going to be just another number in your job until you're 60 or until you retire and you go, oh, I'm retired now. I can enjoy my life. What? And then you've missed the boat. You've missed the boat. Why do you want to get to 60 and retire and go, I'll enjoy my life now? You should be enjoying the life every single day. And why would anyone want to do something that doesn't make you happy? I know it's a very simple thing and people out there listening go, it's easy for you to say because you run your own business and da, 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 da. Why would you get up and not do something that doesn't make you happy? What can you do to wake up and go, I'm doing something that makes me happy? And most people do something at the age of 10 that makes them really happy. If you can do something at the age of 10 that makes you happy and you carry on doing that for the rest of your life in business, you're going to be one happy person. A lot of people stop doing what made them happy at an age. What do you think that is? Do you think it's conditioning? Like, I I think basically a lot of it is that, you know, grow up. 
it's the idea of growing up, isn't it? You know, like, oh, yeah, that's a dream. Grow up. You know, you, you're not going to be able to do that. Mm. And it's, it's, a really, it's a really hard one, you know, isn't it? Because my eldest daughter, she's 25 now, and she, she really wanted to act. Mm. She wanted to be an actress. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's competitive and hard and mm. a lot of people want to do it. When she was making that decision, she went to university. She did a degree in performing arts. But when she was making that decision, I, I felt, I found it really tough personally because I didn't, I didn't want to crush her dream. Yeah. But I also wanted her to, I guess, be a little bit realistic on the other side, because I think that if you're not super, super dedicated and you're going to go out and absolutely hustle and be prepared to, you know, kind of be a waitress or waiter or whatever for 15 years and work in a pub and things like that to try and get your break, you know, I think, I think it is hard and I think you might end up regretting it. So I found that decision, you know, really tough to kind of guide her through that. And, you know, I probably didn't do the best job. Um, maybe I just should have fully supported her and, you know, kind of encouraged her to go and do it. But I think it's, um, I think a lot of people's parents maybe try and protect them, don't they? And so, you know, they, they worry about, oh, if you follow your dream and it doesn't work, what's going to happen? And they want you to have that safety. But um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. But I like the way you keep it very, very simple. And I like the way you talk about, you know, do what you love. Yeah. But it's yeah. finding out what you want from life. You know, if you actually asked 100 people, what do you want from life? They'll go, oh, shit, I haven't really thought about that. Yeah, it's the hardest question. What, what makes you happy? Yeah, what, what makes you happy? Are you happy? I ask, if you ask anyone, any of my pals, I go up to them and go, uh, uh, Jane, how you doing? Yeah, good. Are you happy? Everyone goes, oh, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Uh, are you happy? People really have to think. Yeah. And then you get an honest answer. If you say to someone, you're okay? Yeah, of course I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. I'm cool. Yeah, whatever. Are you happy? You know, it's a tough question. And it's been, going back to your thing here a minute ago, it's, a, it's something that's been drilled in. You've got to remember, our grandparents were said, right, go out and get a job to our parents. Our parents are drilled into them. Go out, go to school, get your education. And now there's this new thing called universities. I'm talking about our parents because no one went to university in the seventies and eighties. You had to be super clever back then. Yeah. And there's only 1% of the country now, uh, 1% back then would do it. They've drilled it into the kids these days. Get your education, go to university, choose a subject, and then you'll find an amazing career. But they seem to forget that. At the age of 18, you haven't got a clue what you want to do. Oh, I just didn't have any, I, apart from no one does. starting a clothing brand. No one does. In terms of getting a job. You're I, not an adult. You're still yeah. a kid. Yeah. You're still a kid. 18. Well, I go to university. Oh, shit. All oh, my teachers told me to go to university. My parents have told me to go to university. My parents want me to go to university. So when they're sitting around having dinner with eight mates that evening, they can show off about me, go, about their son or daughter going to university for three years. Little do they know that those parents are putting that young 18 to 21 year old, when they finish university, they're paying £27,000 in education for tuition fees over three years and leaving with £50,000 worth of debt around their neck when they go into their first ever job. That is a tough start. It's a really, really hard start. You know, it just... But whose fault is it? Uh, the kids uh, don't... If you're an 18 year old, you're getting free money chucked at you, 27 grand. Oh yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And living costs for your beer, your accommodation, your food, your, your travel to university... £50,000 before you want to go and, and, and be free and do any business you want. And the thought of paying it back is so far away that it doesn't seem real. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an unfair start and it's built into the system at the moment. But I think, it, interestingly, I think the world has completely changed. It you know, has. It's changed. It was changing anyway rapidly. But since this lockdown, since this whole kind of weird scenario the world's been in, yeah. you know, the world has really, really moved on. People yeah. work in a different way. It's kind of blended, you know, people working from home. And I think that, you know, I think it's really it's time for people to wake up a little bit mm. and realise that they need to kind of, there's so many opportunities out there yeah. and it's not perhaps as scary as people make it. And, you know, sometimes I think just as you said, as long as it's kind of calculated. So I like the fact that you didn't say, yeah, just quit your job, 
go and no, leap in, go and do what you love. No, no, it's no. a graduated. That's an easy, everyone says that. that's an easy thing. A business is hard. If you want to go solo and you want to be an entrepreneur, you set up a business. Hear me out. It's not easy. It's really not easy. And if you're going from a paid salary in a corporate job or happy and ticking along, ticking it turns away, up every month. It turns every month. You've got two, two grand, three grand, four grand in your bank each month. Whether that business is doing well or not doing well, you're getting your money. You're in your comfort zone. I would hate to be in my comfort zone. Do you perform better that's, that's when you- That's the dead zone for me. Do you, so do you perform better when you when you have like pressure? 100%. Yeah. What it's is it about shoulders. that? It's the buzz. The bu it's the buzz. It always comes back to it's the, the buzz. It's the buzz. It's the buzz of having pressure. Yeah. People call it stress. I don't call anything to do with stress. Stress links the heart disease and links to stress. Stress is when if a family member's got cancer or, you, or someone's dying or you, someone has just died. That's stress. This is business. Business is a game. It's fun. And if you make it fun in a game, you're going to have, a, you're going to really enjoy your next 20 years or 30 years creating business. But business isn't easy. And you've got to remember, no one's taught us business. No. No one. No one's taught us how to run a business. No one's taught us about the, the VAT and the tax and dealing with accountants and, and credit and, and everything that goes with banking. And no one's taught us business. No one's taught us about marketing to go and do that. No one's taught us about to create a brand. No one's taught us anything. You know, and that's why 50% of businesses fail after 18 months. Yeah. 80% of businesses fail after five years and only a couple of percent make it past 10 years. But it's fun learning that stuff. I don't think everyone finds it fun learning that stuff, but I've always found it really fun researching stuff, looking into branding, learning about marketing, learning how to design a snowboarding jacket, you know, just from scratch. But the other thing is, is a steep learning curve. And I remember that, you know, you, thankfully you only make big mistakes once usually mm. and they're important ones and the first box of t-shirts i ordered from america like really nice american apparel they mm. were like really fitted and i was going to have them printed up in the uk and i didn't know what duty was yeah so they came into the country and i sort of spent everything i had on the <laughs> box and of then you got another bill to pay and then they turned up with this quite big bill yep. duty and i was like shit yeah what do i do now so i had to go and borrow some money and you know pay for them and get them printed but i, I didn't make that mistake again yeah. and there's something about learning it i mean i'm not saying this is a good way to do it but um I wouldn't change that experience because, mm. you know, it made me think a lot more about, you know, okay, what are the other bits that could happen and yeah. kind of catch me out. I love that. I mean, I, li I like your sort of um, take on entrepreneurship and, you know, keeping it simple, uh, making sure you do something you love. Obviously, I want to talk about, you know, your current business, which is, I'm sure you probably have more than one thing going on. Mm. I, I know you do, in fact, but Bournemouth Sevens. Yeah. So you, you obviously, you had this theme of kind of, you know, events yeah. and you're doing all of the club nights and the student club nights yeah. and building really incredible brands around that. Then you obviously came to a point where you'd finished that journey and it was time to do something else. So how did you, how did you start to set up Bournemouth Sevens? Because, you know, just looking at the website and kind of officially what Bournemouth Sevens is, it's the, the world's largest sport and music festival. Yeah, yeah. So how did that idea come about? Because it's kind of, I guess for you and people listening, this will know exactly how it came about. There's events, there's putting people together, yeah. creating beautiful experiences, yeah. having a cool brand, there's rugby, there's sport. So for you, it was just a natural thing. But, yeah. you know, like, how did it start? It was, um, it was in 2008, I was sitting on a beach. With, so the recession year. Yeah, 2000, recession year. Because that's when my snowboarding clothing brand, like when I decided to sell the mm. brand was in 2008, not because we were crushed, mm. but you know, we took a dip. But, yeah. So it was a tough year for a lot of people. Well, it was two, it, it, I had 10 years throwing 1,500 parties in nightclubs all around the UK, across 40 nightclubs in my 20s, traveling around the UK. It was time to slow down. Got into my 30s and said, I want to just create something new and fresh i knew how to promote i knew how to make people happy i knew how to create a great experience and i knew that i created an environment that everyone wanted to be in but to transition that 
the next transition for me was to go, okay, I've been doing nightclubs now. I'm a promoter. Now, festivals. Why don't I get into a festival? And the reason what triggered it for me in 2006, 2007, the smoking ban came in. So people coming into your nightclub but had to leave outside, go and have a fag. Yeah. Whether it's in the rain, snow, whatever it may be. That dampened the atmosphere a little bit. Also, the late licensing bars came in. So in 2006, seven, they were saying, okay, all the bars, all your feeder bars to your nightclubs. Because back then, people would go drinking from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. and Or 10, 7, 7 p.m. to 6, 10.30 p.m. And then put everyone ship out of all the 10, 15, 20 bars in your city and they'd all come into your nightclub. All of a sudden, these bars were saying, well, we can stay open until 2 o'clock in the morning, same as that nightclub. Let's make a little dance floor. So they started to compete with you. Yeah, they started yeah. to compete. So like, hold on a minute. Okay, our numbers aren't 2,000 students in that nightclub each week. It got down to 1,900. Next week, 1,700. Where are they? Oh, they're standing in the bars. It, it, I knew something was coming. And I'm quite good at in business, fortunately, that I can see, find, I'm always kind of like five moves ahead to see what the next step is for us. And it was like, right, the time's right. I've done 10 years of this. The next step, why don't we create a sport or music festival no one's doing in the world? You know, there's a lot, in the UK, there's a lot of music festivals. Back in 2008, there was probably 15 festivals. Mm. Now there's like 140 festivals. That's a lot, isn't it? Huge. The market market has gone huge. But back then, you would have your Glastonbury, your Isle of Wight, your Reading festivals, your V festivals, you know, all those big major ones that everyone knew. But they were music festivals. And I was thinking, well, my background is sport. I knew how to promote. I know how to get students move around in places. Why don't we create a sport and music festival? And that was the idea of Bournemouth Sevens in 2008. And was that, that was the first in the UK. Was it the first in the world? Was anyone else doing kind of like a, a sport and music type festival? No. no, no. So again, it was like an original category. Pioneer again. And that was really important to me, as it was with the student nights, yeah. as it was now creating a festival. I wanted to be pioneer. Were you looking for that gap or did you just see it? Does that, do you understand what I, I mean? Just, I, I was thinking, what's next for me, really? And what's it, next? And what it is, came along. It came along. Well, next for, you know, if you look at the past now, every festival owner these days used to be a nightclub promoter or putting on events or whatever. So it kind of was the next transition for me. Yeah. And also very importantly that just on that note, going back to comforts, after my first year of being in business, I bought my first house. You got that first really peaceful night's sleep. Yes. And it was comfy and calm and no noise. And it was amazing. I was going to ask you earlier, when did you get that first night's sleep? And you know, you reminded me and you just told yeah. us. So yeah, that was yeah. it. That was yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I owned it. And my biggest goal as a kid was I want to own my own home. And I did it in that first year. Yeah. Because obviously we we did quite well from the, from the student nights. Yeah. So they're yeah, rolling on, that was in my 20s. And rolling on now into my 30s, it was like, right, sport and music festival. Well, I'm well connected in rugby. All my pals at the time were playing for England, England captains, everyone I knew in that whole rugby world. You know, one phone call away from different celebrities. Um, and I thought, why don't we create a sport and music festival? So long come the idea. And in the January that year, I was thinking, right, it's very different, right? Being a promoter going into a nightclub and saying, right, I'll take the door money, you take the bar money. But I want you as a nightclub to have all the stock there, all the bar staff there, all security there, the toilets there, the DJ there, the decks there, everything laid on. And I'll just pack the place out. So you bring the people. I'll bring the people, take the money, I'll drive away. Which is the magic ingredient, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because they were spending on the bars. They were happy. We were happy. Students happy. But actually, when you're going to say, I want to do a festival now, naivety again played a huge part in this. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. We rented 67 acres of greenfield land next to the airport at Bournemouth. Wow. That's a lot. A lot. And I knew nothing about police, council, licensing, sponsorship, Marquee companies, shower companies, toilet companies, fencing companies, Wi-Fi companies. 
security en masse. I knew nothing about any of that. But I went in, balls deep, and said, right, we're in for this, we're on. So you just learned? Just learned on the thing. But what I was thinking was, I'm going to take, hopefully take the money and I'll pay everyone afterwards. Little did I know that we'd done all the deals with everyone and it come to January that I weren't paying. Before, before, before the event? Within yeah. a week. I remember my, it was only myself and my wife and my wife was working at JP Morgan down here in Bournemouth and she had a, a, a nice number. She didn't enjoy her job at all because it was corporate. She hated it. She would cry, think, go to work and what am I doing in this piss boring job? But it pays well. But it was secure. It was a trap. It was secure. Yeah. And, but it was, she felt trapped. And then um, I was like, I can't breathe. I've got too much on my plate. I'm juggling so many contractors, so many people, trying to promote, trying to deal with emails. I've never done emails before. You know, I was trying to deal with everything. It all got on top. It was all too much. And um, I said to her, can you leave your job and come and help? And she did. That's a big ask. Isn't Huge it? ask for, yeah. for your other half to do that. You know, she was going out with a promoter. You know, so she's like, what do you mean you haven't got a proper job? You know, well, why are you not going to work? Why are you not earning a salary? Because she was taught from her parents, go to uni, go and get a job, da, 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 da. And then um, we paid, she come on board and, and, and we paid all the, everyone wanted deposits. So you had to pay 20% deposit for your marquee, showers, toilets, da, da, spent all the money. And how long is this before the event? Because the event- Five months before we so run you, out of money. You've got to lay out all that cash five months before you're going to see any we money. We run out. We run out of money five months before. I needed to find another 200 grand. Recession, middle of recession. All the banks were like, no, 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 nothing. Sponsorship, no, nothing in front of about. What's our only option? Did you ever for a minute think you might have to pull the plug? Our only option was to remortgage our house. Wow. That's a, that's, that's a big undertaking. That is a huge, huge conversation to have with your wife. Yeah. Because you either walk away from the hundred grand we've just put in. Remember, this is 15 years ago. Yeah. hundred grand we put in. We had to find another 200 grand, which we didn't have, but we had a house. And it was that conversation with your wife saying, Fleur, you know, the only option is we walk away from the hundred grand, but I, I don't want to. We need to remortgage the house. And that was a, a proper conversation. There was a lot of tears from my wife. And that's not nice to be around, you know, when you've got someone who's been secure all her life and all of a sudden she's thinking, so if no one turns up at this festival and you don't sell the tickets or the teams don't come in, we're losing our house. Who's this guy who spent all of our money yes, <laughs> and exposed us for a lot, for twice as much again? Essentially, yeah. essentially is that, exactly that. How does your wife feel about risk and, you know, entrepreneurship? Well, I've been with her now for 18 years and she gets me. <laughs> so she, she obviously she understands that it works and you know, how it works. She's risk averse. You know, she's, she's a, a beautiful lady, Fleur, and she's grew up in the hills of Wales in a little village. Nice. I grew up in pubs and craziness. Different backgrounds. Different backgrounds. And makes for a good marriage though. Often. Makes for a wonderful marriage. Wonderful marriage. And she's a very kind hearted human. Went to Loughborough Sports University as well. Ex-international athlete. Is that, is that where you met? We met there, but we were going out with different people at the time. Okay. But we met in London. We're both, I was living at the time in, uh, I moved from Brixton and then moved to Chelsea Harbour and she was in Putney and we met at a pub called Sloney Pony in, in Fulham, Parsons Green. And, uh, then we moved to Bournemouth. Yeah, my wife. Um, my wife hates entrepreneurship. She hates the idea of running her own business, and you know, she, it's not. It's not. Everyone's not cut out for entrepreneurship. It scares the hell out of her. Yeah, you know, um, and you know, which, which is wonderful. And like, she's so much more intelligent than me, and she's like the brains and the logic, and yep. you know. So when I talk to her about things, she asks sensible questions, yep. whereas I, I tend to rush in a little bit headlong sometimes. Yeah. So obviously, it works though. 
You know, that you, you remortgaged your house. You took a big gamble. Massive gamble. Anyone listens to this, do not do what we did. Do not remortgage the house for a party in a field. Did you, like, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, telling business stories will look back and go, yeah, I knew it would work. Did you, did you really think you could make it work or were you worried? I didn't have a clue. You just, you just knew you needed to do it. I didn't have a clue because you don't know how many people are going to buy tickets. People buy tickets on the day. Yeah, that's crazy. He crazy. So you're, you're, <laughs> you, there couldn't be more sort of uh, factors outside your control yep. in this kind of business, is it? That you've basically, you've got to pay all that money up front, yep. like five or six months up front. Yep. <laughs> you wait for people to turn up yep. and then hopefully they buy a ticket and yep. pay you. Yep. So that's a lot of... Uh, Mad. Yeah. And you look, I look back at it, I, I mentor other entrepreneurs and I say, take calculated risks and, you know, do, do, that was not calculated whatsoever. That was a dream. But I bet you learned a lot that, from that. I learned loads. Yeah. I've learned loads. That was a dream. I was selling people my dream. I was promoting. There was no Facebook and Instagram and all the stuff to promote it. It was still flyers and posters everywhere. So I was going taking teams of students in cars up to Twickenham Stadium, dressed up as Superman. The boys were Superman. The girls were super, uh, Superwoman outfits. And we had 80,000 flyers. So we're going up to... Twickenham outside the stadium found out these flyers going Bournemouth Sevens Bournemouth Sevens people are like what is Bournemouth Sevens what is this but we made an impact people getting the flyers looking going Bournemouth Sevens what's that throwing them away and throwing them up in the air and, but well, you see it everywhere see it everywhere and we were we had uh, eight girls and eight boys and we're in, uh, you know the, the car parks of Twickenham where everyone's got all the uh, boozy and all the marquees there yeah. running out of marquees giving them flyers putting them on the windscreen of the cars just being putting it in your face being chased by security everywhere <laughs> You know, it was literally that. It was like Benny Hill. Like, did, 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 did. In and out of toilets, hiding. I had all the flyers. And yeah, we just had to do everything we, in my power to let people know about this new festival. Yeah, they don't like people promoting stuff on their... Definitely their, their not, turf. on their patch. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, there was a huge amount of risk. It takes two weeks to build the festival site. All the beer tents, all the, all the marquees going up, all the security. So on the day, you've got all the security sitting there, everyone waiting, all the bar stuff. Well, I don't know how many people are going to turn up. So it's literally just wait and <laughs> the see. The biggest gamble you'd ever make. It's not as if you do pre-sold tickets. You go, oh, I know there's 7,000 people turning or 1,000. Oh, no, we're in serious trouble. Or We didn't know. I also didn't know once people come through the door, how much they're going to spend per head on the bars. I didn't know where they were going to move around the site. I didn't know which tents they were going to go into. It was all the unknown. I didn't have a mentor to go, can you teach me this? But you knew the kind of like, if it's a cake that you're making, yep. you kind of knew the ingredients. Don't you? you knew how to get people there. I knew how Hopefully to, they turn up. I was a promoter. Yeah, exactly. So you know to have you know how to put these right ingredients together. You hope the cake comes out the oven all right and as you want it to. You do hope, yeah. Do you think it was easier promoting back in the days of flyers and posters and like you could get in people's faces a little bit sometimes, you know, you maybe upset the security, but you're handing out there's something real. It's yeah. tangible. You know, you've got a fly, you put it in someone's hand or or they're all over the floor and yeah. you're seeing you're seeing that sort of yeah. exposure to it. And nowadays it's so easy because it's digital and you know, it's it's anyone can get on social mm. media and it's kind of cheaper, more expensive pay-per-click, mm. but you know, cheaper if you can reach people organically, which is harder and harder and harder. But do you think there's something easier about doing it old school? I loved it. Yeah. I, lo I had 10 years of old school flyering. And people go, oh, you've been flyering at two o'clock in the morning where people are leaving nightclubs or to promote your night the following night or you're flyering around all the different university campuses or you're putting up posters and getting chased by councils because you're fly post. It, that's how it was. It was a buzz again. 1999 to 2008 when did that whole 10 years. That's how it was because there was no other option. Yeah. You know, and... um I learnt my trade again because it's about building relationships. You're there and if, you, if you've if got a business and you can't sell, don't start a business. When I used to do the clothing 
I used to go up to Portobello Road Market. That's mm. how, how I started the business. And so I'd get in the car at three in the morning and drive yeah. up there and set it up to a stall. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money because t-shirts, you know, t- you had to sell a lot of yeah. volume, but it was good. But the thing is, people come up, they'd come back each week. You'd talk to them, you'd look them in the eye, yep. they'd ask questions. And it was yep. that real, real connection. And I think one thing that I run a very different business now and I've kind of feel like I've really lost that connection of like hands on making something, yeah. seeing someone, yeah. they like it, they give you money, like actual yeah. money, not yeah. not just numbers on a on a screen. Yeah, I agree. Totally yeah. agree. So going back to that, it's about relationships. Again, you're learning your trade. Every flyer that I was given to hand on the evening of the nightclub, they might have an option to go to two nightclubs. If you're talking to them, why your night's going to be better than the other nightclub? So you're walking beside them and talking and chatting and they might have a group of 15 mates and you know you can turn, turn their minds from sitting against that club to your club and they're going to give you three quid a head. And there's 15, there's 45 quid there. Then the next people are coming out of the bars and you're working the crowd. Yeah, you know? selling to people. And then, like, that's the thing about that energy of interaction, like, you know, kind of having relationships with other humans is that you, you see how they respond and you can see their energy and you yeah. can change the conversation. Whereas like digitally, it's, you know, it's easier in kind of things like audio podcasts and stuff, yeah. but it's hard to have that interaction on like Instagram, Facebook mm. and things like that. It's um, got its place though. It's amazing. It's got a huge place because uh, when Mark Zuckerberg landed Facebook on my lap in 2008, all of a sudden I was like, oh my God. Cha-ching. Cha-ching. I'm thinking <laughs> I don't have to go flyer anymore. I'd have to put fly posters out. I can press buttons now. And back then it was about how many people could join a group. I had like 15 groups. I was getting banned from Facebook weekly. I was coming under different names because I was like, Oh my God, the more energy I put in here, these people joining groups, there might be 9,000 people. I can put a message out and they're all going to read that message. Those early days were amazing, weren't they? Because people responded to stuff. It, organically, you could reach yeah. people, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas now it's um, it's a money game for them. And- well, it's a, it's a, people complain about advertising now on Facebook and Instagram, but it's the most amazing tool any business can have. It's incredible. You can reach, as a very, you can I reach know, a specific I could reach person. 15 21 15 girls who are 21 years old in nottingham who like partying or like music and i can put a message straight to them and pay some money to go to them without me driving up there and talking to them this is how you look at things this is interesting because like not everyone looks at things this way a lot of people are like oh you know it's bad and they see the bad side but other people can see the opportunity yeah they can see the positive side they can see how useful it is to go and create a relationship create something for someone else i want to come back to social media because i think you might have stopped using it for yeah, a while yeah, personally yeah. and i want to talk about that again in a second i want to sort of hear the rest of the bournemouth sevens journey because you know it's another scale it's another thing about scale isn't it numbers mm. you know like school there's 300 kids yeah. <laughs> university is like what 1200 12,000 12,000 sorry yeah, yeah. 12,000 it's like the numbers the scale gets bigger and then after uni for that 12,000 it went to a two million because of all the different universities around where we were so you, you had a pool of two million students, students. yeah so the numbers get bigger and, bigger and the buzz bigger. gets bigger absolutely and the excitement gets bigger and then you come to the festivals and then you're doing bigger numbers still because you know the venue which is outside in field 67 acres yeah there's you can fit a lot of 30, people. Thousand people Thirty thousand people that now i can promote to 60 million people across the uk yeah. I'm not saying you're gonna have kids there and and and, old, and 70 odd year olds but it's just like on scale again and my businesses over the years it's just a numbers game it purely is a numbers game yeah. So you just keep chasing the bigger numbers. Yeah. How can I put, how can I make people happy? That's what I think. The money and everything else will come after us. How can I make people happy? We've got to have a great experience. Yeah. I love you know, that. Over the past 20 years now, I've sold over 1 million tickets personally. Festivals. For, the, for all the festivals and all the events and all the student nights. And that's a lot of, it's a lot of, that's people. A lot of happy people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Creating experiences is fantastic. And I think it's a missing thing. Mm. And I think as more businesses get digital and it's amazing, you know, it does yeah. a lot of wonderful things for our lives, but we kind of, we're losing that connection and, but you're doing the opposite. You're kind yeah. of uh, creating the connection still. And especially after these weird two years where people have, um, cause you, you didn't do an event presumably in 2020 because. No, it got cancelled. It got, got cancelled two months before about to open the doors. Yeah. We do events for, I've got an agency and we do events, corporate events, yeah. not on the scale that you do them, but they're, they're really fun. It's a massive buzz because, you know, we, we design the whole thing and we direct it and we choose the venue and we just create the experience for people. And, you know, it's usually a couple of hundred people, not 30,000. Mm. But um, when we went digital, we had to sort of keep trying to keep doing them, but we had to do digital versions. You know, it's still cool and we had to be creative, but it's not the same. You just don't get that sort of... Uh, it's, it's just not exciting in the I same way. I don't like digital events whatsoever. Yeah. I don't because I'm old school and I like live events. And I love seeing people and watching people's faces and they walk into your events with massive smiles and they're talking to their mates and they're walking around your festival going, oh, he's changed that, he's added that, he's got a big top dance tent, he's got 12... That, that. You don't get that digitally. Even digital events now, you're there if you put a digital event on and you see you've got 100 people turn up, you can't even see their faces, they blank their faces off. Yeah. Also, everyone. How disheartening is it for a promoter to put on a digital event? Yeah, you can't see what pe <laughs> you can't see pe how people are reacting, yeah. and also people are spending their whole day on Zoom anyway. So yeah. the last thing they want is a digital. Event. Not, yeah. And you can't do a firewalk digitally. No. We did a firewalk once. It was brilliant. It was awesome. <laughs> brilliant. Uh, it's good. A lot of fun. Um, if you, you know, other people have been asked this question, but I'd love to get your take on it. You know, like if you lost everything for some reason, mm. let's just say and you still still got your house, still 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 sort of kind of married you haven't had some kind of tragedy but if you lost all of the business stuff yeah. for some reason it was just kind of cancelled mm. deleted and all went back to zero mm. how would you start again like so you've got 100 quid mm. cash you've got your iphone and you've got like wi-fi 4g access what would you do like what sort of industry would you go for what steps events. would you take you go straight back into straight events. back into events what you know and what you're good at and what you love that's what i've that's what i know it's my skill set and what steps would you take like to go from like that hundred quid to your first hundred grand or million or whatever, it floats your boat a bit more. A million. Okay. So if you, to go from that hundred quid cash in your pocket mm. with your iPhone to your first million, what I'll, steps would you take? I would create, I would create a brand. First thing you do. hundred percent. I'd create a logo. I'd create a brand. I'd want to know what that, what the, what the feel is. I'd want to know what event I'd want to put on. I'd find the date. I'd find the venue. Um, cause date and venue are key. I've looked at 19 other businesses that I've said no to. And that's really powerful. We can move on to that in another conversation, but mm. that's super powerful. That is saying, saying no. no. Oh, yeah. Oh, lovely, lovely feeling. Yeah, I'd, I'd find that. I'd find the venue and I'd find the date. If you can tick those two, great. For a new business, for me, it's got to tick eight of the ten boxes for me to go. Yeah, we can do it. Is there parking? Are there are there uh, are there enough people in the local area to be the core audience of your event? Are there enough chimney pots? Can you work with? Can you collaborate with different businesses? Can you get sponsors on board? Who can you talk to? Who can you do a win-win deal with? There's it, so much. That's what I would, I would create an event, 100%. So you, you, without even thinking about it, you go straight into events. Now, you don't have to answer this question because, yeah. you know, maybe you want to keep it to yourself. Mm. But what would you look at in terms of event? Because, you know, you've, you've been a pioneer. You've gone into student nights and you've mm. created these student night brands, new category. There's this really cool book I read years ago. It's called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Mm. And like law number one or law number two is create a new category. Mm. And I think you've done that both times with the sport and the mm. music and the, the student nights. Mm. What category would you go? Do you have any, have you got any ideas of things that, you know, and don't give it away if you don't want to, but what would you look at? Do you see opportunities out there in the event space? that 1000%. And it's a really nice question you've said there, Ollie, because I'm doing that at the moment. I'm creating a new category in events. 
Cool. For the last 20 months, when I lost my festival in March 2020, when Boris spoke, my festival was two months later. Sold out festival, 30,000 people. Oh. Bang, 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 bang. We moved it to August, bank holiday weekends. Give us a, a dangly carrot to go, oh, we can do this. This COVID thing's going to go away. What is COVID? What is pandemic? What is C19? Oh, it'll fly by. It'll go away. Whatever it is, it's a bit of a nuisance, a bit of fly by. So we moved it to August with the hope that we could put this on. And to move a festival is not easy. Yeah, it must have been You've got to deal with your customers, you've got to deal with your sponsors, you've got to deal with the venue, you've got to deal with the police, license, council, everything, all the hoops. But because we're a nimble company with seven full-time staff for Bournemouth Sevens as a company, we can move very quickly because we've got wonderful relationships with everyone we've built up for the last 15 years. And because you're so hands-on. Hands-on, yeah. So we moved it to August, it got cancelled. I knew in March 2020 when Boris spoke, this is my time to shine. I knew we're going to go into a recession. I knew there's going to be big problems because it reminded me of 2008. And I thought, I can't wait for this. Not for all the horrible things that have gone on, but I, my mojo is back. That entrepreneur spirit was back. Because for the last five years prior to that, I've been semi-retired because we have a well-oiled machine in the festival. Mm. Got a wonderful team in there. Got a great management team. And it's been working. It's working really well. So you're bored. Um, no, I'm not bored. I don't mean that in a bad way. As in, oh, you know, I don't like what I'm doing. But you're, you know, learning about your nature. You probably yeah. want to sort of, you're feeling the itches to go and do I th- something. I think you're right there. For the first, from 2016, when it was like, right, the well-oiled machine is up and running. It's been going now for eight or nine years. Bournemouth Sevens, right, I can take a step back. We've been under a lot of pressure building up to get to where it was. Myself and my wife, and we had a, a, a new boy. Hmm. Uh, in our film, like, right, let's go traveling, let's go enjoying. So that's all we did. We just traveled and enjoyed and traveled and holidayed and enjoyed. Da, 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 da. This came along. It was like a blessing in disguise. It was like that feeling you just said a minute ago, if you lost everything, because we could have lost everything. And I was excited. I was going to say, uh, I bet you would be excited by this question. Yeah. And yeah, interesting. Yeah. And at that moment, I was back in the business. At that put it bluntly, I didn't even know the code to get into my own office here. <laughs> so you'd been hands off for a while. <laughs> hands off. I didn't even know the code to get in. I didn't even have a key to the office. I had to go to my managing director, Craig, who's amazing. And he's been with me 10 years now, 11 years. He's a shareholder. He started from uh, a young lad on 14 grand. Now he's a shareholder. He's on. He's a managing director. He's fantastic. Yeah. And I'm very good at building teams of people and, and built up a wonderful team here. I couldn't even get into my own freaking office. <laughs> I like that. You know, so <laughs> that was the moment. I was with my mum. Hmm. Let's get into the office. Come on, let's get back. She come and stayed for a visit. She's a great entrepreneur, my mum. And um, we couldn't get in. So I had to phone the staff saying, guys, it was on a Saturday. Have you got a spare key? Spare key, I couldn't get in. I finally got in. I was like, right, I'm back. I'm back. And that's when the idea came about of going, I need to think of a business that is pandemic proof because I could lose my baby here. And my baby was born the Sevens Festival. I didn't have a second business because we'd sold our second business. So that was it, full time. Yeah. 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 I didn't have a second business. Like, right, I want to think of a new business. What is that? I was on doing my homework for. 60 days on YouTube. What business can I do? What business can I do? Bang, bang. If I could do this, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. I was pandemic proof. I was all of a sudden, bingo, online events course. Now nice. that is pandemic proof. And we've been working on that now for the last 20 months. We, we said, I identified that universities were charging 27 grand to do a course in events management. Right. There's a myth out there. You've got to do events management degree to get into events industry. I knew that wasn't true. I was like, why don't we create a course that people can do in three months 
a fraction of the time and a fraction of the price of doing a degree. And what I will do is we'll bring in 40 of the industry experts of today from Glastonbury and Reading and, and uh, Boardmasters and, and event management plans and health and safety people, to 40 of the industry experts. Doing real events. Coming like- in here and giving guest lectures. And we've bought this course all together. It's been rubber stamped by Chartered Institute of Marketing as a diploma oh, wow. and certificates. And now we're about to launch on January the 1st, 2022. So where can people find that course if they are interested? If they're interested in the course, they can find it at theeventcrowd.com. And obviously I'll share links to all of these bits and pieces, uh, everything you're doing. As an employer mm. in the events industry, yeah. how much do you value uh, uh, that 27 grand degree? Me? You know, look when someone comes up to you and you're looking to employ someone, yeah, exactly. How, how important is that for you? Uh, not important whatsoever. Because it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know much about the events industry, but I would hazard a guess that the people who are teaching that course at university (laughs) have never run an event. Or reading from a book written 30 years ago, regurgitating stuff. It annoys me this subject does, uh, Ollie. It does does annoy me because they're regurgitating stuff and regurgitating stuff because they are a lecturer and... They're reading stuff from books written a long time ago. So I'm not giving any advice here, mm. of course, but a potential student out there who's thinking maybe I should go and invest 27 dish grand in an event marketing degree and come up with kind of like 40, 50 grand of debt mm. before I get my first job. And, but I need it to get a job. Possibly there's a different route. And uh, this course sounds amazing because, you know, the, the point is, is that it's real people who, who run events and yeah. have always run events. So it's apart from yourself and you've got a track record, which mm-hmm. obviously is amazing and you've discussed here. Who else is teaching on this course? Oh, I, I would like to say the names. When the course gets released, all the names are on there. Okay, cool. There's just a plethora of wonderful, wonderful people who are the best at what they do. But real people. Real people. But they're also telling you what went wrong. Yeah. They'll give an ex- example. I was working on Glassbury and as an event person, things go wrong because it's real life time. This went wrong and this is how you adapt and this is what we did and this is what we did to solve that problem because at the end of the day, we're all events people are all problem solvers. We've all got a great attention to the detail. We're great at communicating. We're problem solvers. Yeah. And I think just going back to your point there, for £27,000 to do an event management degree, that's not cool. It really isn't cool. But, if someone came to me and said they've done an events management degree, it says to me that they want a career in events. And it says to me they've committed to three years of their life to prove that they want to get into events. That's what it says to me. Mm-hmm. Someone coming off the street who has got good communication, great attention to detail, bubbly, good with people, is kind, organized. That's just as good and loves and got passion for events. That's just as good as someone's got a degree. And we, I'll sit there and say, well, okay, well, you've got a degree. I feel sorry for you that you're in debt and you haven't got any debt. I won't choose the events management degree person over the other person just because they've got a degree. For you, it's the person. It's It's the people. It's it's, the person. It's the character. It's the mindset. It's the optimism in your mind. And that's... uh, The willingness to learn. But to be fair, those traits are things that you can't learn necessarily. You can learn the events business, but the traits of like just, you know, having a good personality and liking people Mm. and, you know, being bubbly, you know, there's stuff that you can't necessarily learn from a a course anyway. From a book. Well, it's very very much theory-led. Yeah, it's it's interesting this. I I think we could probably talk about that and, you know, education for a long time. But I, I find it fascinating. So go and check out the course, obviously. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, kind of, what your definition of success is. It's kind of a strange sounding question, you know, for a lot of people it's, oh, I want to make X amount of money. But, you know, you obviously know what makes you happy. Yeah. So what, what would you, what's your definition of success? What does success mean to you? Well, I haven't got any addictions. 
I'm not an addictive personality. I'm addicted to success. And success to me isn't about the money. I'm not into Ferraris and Bentleys and, and fast cars. I'm not into watches. I've got a nice home. I've got a really nice wife and a, and a wonderful little boy. I've got a great set of mates. I'm healthy. I've got a nice family around me and I eat really good food. And I love holidays. My only, my only thing that comes about for me that I really, really will spend money on really is holidays. So, so like there's a bit of freedom in that. So you, you can go and do what you want kind of when you want to. Yeah, you, you're free. When you do, you talk about success. Success can be the accolades. It can be money to some people. It could be recognition. It could be anything like that. That all comes at a later date, you know. But what people don't see is they see, might see an overnight success, but they don't realise that the 10 or 15 or 20 years that have gone ahead of you, you know, as that big thing goes around the internet, that iceberg, you know, the iceberg at the top, but you see success and someone's happy and someone's, they don't realise what we'd gone through, the financial pressures, the sleepless nights, the tears from my wife four nights a week in bed in the six months leading up to that festival when we run out of money that if no one turned up on that front door, we'd lose our house. There's a hundreds of things we can talk about mm. what create that get in the way before you really hit success. But success for me is about keeping life simple. Success for me is, like, I don't listen to the news. Yeah, I don't know. That's success for me because I don't want anything getting in the way of my mind of being creative. I don't want any negativity coming into my mind. And you know, they talk about the racehorse with the blinkers. That's how I like to be, you know, and... Um, so you're focused on something and you go and chase that down. Yeah, focus on it. If anyone out there's listening and you've got an idea, go for it. Everything out of the way, go for it. You're going to have, it's going to be not a straight line to success. It's squiggly all over the place. But the person that sees you as success thinks it was just a straight, easy line. And there's a lot of gurus out there talk about success and now it's a straight line and you can get there within a month. What a load of old bollocks. I think this is one thing. I think, I think possibly the biggest thing that stops a lot of people, scares a lot of people is the fact that, you know, they think they've got to make a leap from, you know, that scenario. I said to you, what if you lost everything and you had a hundred quid mm. and an iPhone, which, you know, is a situation probably mm. quite a lot of people are in at the moment, mm. you know. They think they've got to make that leap from the hundred quid to the million no. in one go. No. You know, otherwise they're a failure. And, no. it's, you know, and it doesn't work like that. You'll get there one day if you live and breathe it. Yeah. But if you enjoy it on the way, then yeah. that's success. Yeah, that is success. If success yeah. every day is coming in here and no, we're all working, we're all progressing, we're all getting better, we're getting closer to the goal of launching or closer to the goal of putting the festival on. And, and success to me, uh, moving on to that regarding staff and stuff, are oh, the staff happy? We've got the most wonderful culture in there. They look happy. Really happy. It's open plan. Are you happy? I said to them, are you happy? I like the fact you've got a bar. Yeah, we've got a bar. You've support. got a bar with like... That's success. That, Having that's your own little bar in there. Exactly. <laughs> I walked in, that's the first thing I noticed. <laughs> you've got cans of water and yeah, you've got yeah, soft drinks, yeah, yeah. but you've got mm. a bar with two, you know, taps and you've got like beer, yeah. beer and a cider. That's, that's excellent. But moving on to staff there, it's, it's really important that they are progressing. Are they happy? Are they enjoying coming to work? I asked them to go, are you, are you happy coming to work? Yeah, really like it. Is that important to you as Very. well? Very. Because, you know, you create experiences for a living, but you create an experience here as well. Yeah. Is that, is it, do you treat it the same? Yes, is it, is exactly it? the same. Yeah. My staff are more important to me than anything else. You know, the businesses say it's all about the customers. They're the most important. No, 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 no. My team here are more important than anyone else. Because they're like your family, basically. Like my family, yeah. my customers and the people who are, love our brand and feel like they're part of our brand. They're so important to me, but without a wonderful team out there, we wouldn't have the customers. Yeah. You know? Not everyone thinks that way. 
I don't know how other people think. Like, like I say, I don't. Yeah, I no. don't watch telly. You keep know, your blinkers keep on. on. No, I just keep them in my lane. I just stay in my lane. So you you don't you don't listen to the news. You don't read the news. You don't watch telly either. No. No. What do you do in the evenings? What, how, how do you chill out? Podcasts. Listen yeah. to podcasts. I like yeah. listening to people's stories. I like my sport. I say I don't watch telly. I watch all sport. Yeah. <laughs> I watch, yeah. But I don't watch, I don't sit there and watch TV programs. I don't watch movies. You don't kind of just numb out with No, I don't watch stuff. movies. I don't sit there and watch Netflix. I don't watch, I, don't, I haven't got the attention span for that. I like to chill. I like to be with my little boy. I like to have conversations. I like dinner parties. I like nice foods. Yeah. 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 All the good stuff. Yeah. And what, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think you got to that point where, you know, the, uh, the sort of 2020 the lockdowns happened, Boris yeah. made his speech and then you came, you, you couldn't get into the office, Yeah. but then you did get back in with your mum, yeah. I think yeah. you said. And then you, you kind of like, you started again in some respects. So obviously you've still got everything that you've done so yeah. far, but you started again with the course, yes. you know, that you've created and you obviously got a buzz again. You obviously, Huge. you obviously felt compelled to come back in and you got, you got that excitement to Huge. create something from scratch. Huge. What's next for you? You know, obviously we know about the course that's going to be released soon and I'll kind of share the details of mm. that. But what, what else is in the pipeline? Like, what's the next chapter for you? Because obviously you've been successful in mm. several businesses um, and you've still got this Bournemouth Sevens going yeah. um, and that will continue into the future. But what, what's the next chapter for you? The next chapter is the online events course. The next chapter is this uh, my event, eventful entrepreneur podcast that I've done in pandemic. I don't have a clue what podcasts were before the pandemic. So you started that like in 2020? Yeah. People said, do a podcast, tell your story. I went public. I never, I've kept myself private all my life. So you never really shared things before you just got, no. you've had your blinkers on and been doing the business. Yeah. Just cracking on and just enjoying my mates, enjoying life, enjoying, just enjoying, 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 enjoying. And all of a sudden the staff are going, you should go public. You should tell your story. So I told my story. It went viral for my upbringing and what have you, this journey I've been on. And then it was like, oh, God, I like this podcasting thing. Why don't we do our own podcast? Did our own podcast, interviews the most amazing people. Yeah, you've had some quite, uh, you know, interesting guests on. Very, yeah. very. And, and that's given me a purpose. I'm having conversations like this. We've got headphones on, having an hour conversation with someone about real stuff. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? And it's great fun. I love it. So we've been doing the, doing the podcast. We were, we were eight episodes in. I got a phone call from a, a mobile number on a on a Sunday night. Hey, is that Dodge? Yeah. Can I come and see you tomorrow? Yeah. Who's this? I'm uh, the producer from I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I was like, really? I thought someone was taking the piss, if I'm honest with you. Like, I thought it was a mate of mine. I was like, sure, come to the offices tomorrow. And got sat down and said, would you we listen to your podcast? We love your podcast. We love how real and raw it all is. And um, you interviewing people, would you like to be a co-host of a new show? And I was like, what is it? He went, it's the Harry Redknapp show. Wow. So That's a big opportunity. A huge opportunity. So I was like, <laughs> where do I sign? Where's the contract? I'm in. So you were straight away, yes. Yes. 100%. Of course I do. 100%. <laughs> so that came along and the next day I was interviewing Piers Morgan with Harry. Next day was uh, Frank Lampard, Rod Stewart. The list goes on. Ramesh Ranganathan, Jamie. The list goes on and on and on. Frankie Dettori, by putting myself out there, put, raising my energy, going, right, I'm back in the business. I need to do create a new business, create a new online events course that we're working on now and we've been working on for 20 months before launching, getting all the best people in, doing a podcast, I'm in the co-host of Harry Redknapp show. And at the same time, I went public on Instagram. So I went public on Instagram and it's all just popped. And all of a sudden, because I've opened myself up to the world, yeah. so many opportunities are coming in. And I think it's because, you know, you, you share things authentically. And I think that's an interesting thing. We were talking at the beginning before we started recording about podcasts. Yeah. And the fact that you don't kind of like, you know, 
the thing everyone talks about, like monetize your podcast. <laughs> you, you don't like uh, run adverts. No. And you're not looking for kind of, I'm sure you could get sponsors if you wanted, yeah. but you're not looking for big sponsors. You you actually want to have conversations with yeah. people. You want to meet cool people yeah. uh, and you want to create good audio con content yeah. for people to listen to. Yeah. And is that really what, what it's about for Hugely. you? Hugely. Yeah. Hugely. I want my listeners and the following who are listening, who are loving it, who are writing wonderful reviews on Apple. I don't know these people, but they're going out of their way. It, does, it takes a lot for someone to go out of their way to go on Apple to write a review. Yeah. Written review, not just, I'll oh, whack five stars in there and I'll go, have a read through. Well, I certainly, it's so humbling to to read, especially if someone didn't have a clue about doing a podcast. We've just done it. That goes back to your point about if you've got an eye, just get up and do it. What are you waiting for? Yeah. You don't want to be 12 months down the line and go, oh, I should have done that. Oh, I still could have done that. Get up and do it. Make an action, make some action today. It's fun. Know? It's a lot of fun as well. Mm. Who's your like dream? Like, have you got an ultimate podcast guest, like a dream guest? No, not really. No. Not really. There's mm. no one I go, oh, I've got a dream guest. I've had some amazing people on the podcast. Yeah. From Barry Hearn, you know, the biggest private sports promoter in the world. Yeah. They look after Anthony Joshua. From the boxing on. world. Yeah, yeah, boxing world. He owns all the darts, all the boxing, Sky TV, now with the zone. And he's been doing it 40 years. His son, Eddie, mm. you know, is running the boxing, you know, it's turned into a four or five billion pound company it's a profit from empire. scratch and you know barry and i are good mates and and i love that conversation with baz and or having another conversation with a just had an amazing conversation with Staz, who's ex-SBS. I know, my, like, kind of, as I was coming in, waiting to record you for my podcast in your studio, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of weird. Um, you know, I noticed someone kind of walk out yeah. and I recognised that person instantly from, yeah. you know, just well, social media and, you know, following people in that world. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just like, I enjoy every ray of life. You know, it's called the eventful entrepreneur because it's anyone who's had an eventful life, whether it's a SBS or you've been blown up in the Afghanistan or you're an ex-international drug smuggler or you're the sharpest mind in business or you're a festival owner or you're a sporting celebrity or you're just a celebrity for some reason or you're into uh, mind health or whatever it may be i just love chatting to everyone and you know i find it very therapeutic as well it is isn't it yeah yeah also just because of what you've done and how your life has been you you're creating experiences again yep. and this time it's an audio experience where you're having yep. conversations but you're doing it in a certain way bringing people together still current still bringing big people theme together. yep an important thing. I think like a, one of the most important themes nowadays. Um, I've got a couple of quick fire questions mm. for you. And then, I've, you know, you've been very generous mm. with your time and I've really, really enjoyed this. Same. Thank you. Mm. What would you like your legacy to be? Like, what do you want to like leave behind and be remembered for, if anything? Mm. A pioneer. A pioneer of things that he put his mind to and became successful at. Mm. That's nice. Mm. That's a good mm. personalised answer. never even thought of it, but it's just come off the top of my head. Pioneer. I want to be a pioneer. I've been pioneer of the student nights, a pioneer of the sportswear brand that we built from nothing, built up and we sold. Pioneer of that because we built, built, beat the industry business model. And that was huge for us. The pioneer of creating a sport and music festival. Pioneer of doing this online events course. You know, everything that we're doing, I just want to be the first there and make sure it's a success. And it's not about money. That comes later. And I'm at a point in my life in my 40s now, it's definitely not about money. It's about what we can teach the next generation coming through, whether it's about events, whether it's about entrepreneurship, whether it's about life skills, whether it's about being, just being you. You are good enough. We've all brought down to this earth with a gift. A lot of people lose their gift when they leave school and get into normal work and go, I've lost my gift. Where's that gift? That gift isn't just gone. That gift is in your rucksack on your back. The gift of wisdom, the gift of the, all these wonderful gifts you've got, whatever, whether you're creative, don't lose your creativity because you might be in a job you can't be creative. We've all got the gift and the key to it is not to lose that. 
find an outlet for it yeah. and then maybe turn it into something and yeah. you know do something you love. Yeah. Who inspires you the most? And it doesn't have to be like, you know, I don't know, Richard Branson. It doesn't have to be anyone like that. It could be your next door neighbour. It could be, you know, who, who in your life like, consistently inspires you and you look up to? My mum and my dad. Because of, you know, just the opportunities they gave you and their work ethic. And, Hugely. Yeah. Hugely, mum and dad. Because they're, they're girl done good, boy done good. They gave me a wonderful kickstart to life. Growing up in pubs, a lot of people may turn their nose up at that and go, pubs, oh, that's not a nice place. And listen, looking back, uh, if I'm brutally honest, I wouldn't want to, my boy to be growing up in pubs today. Yeah. I just wouldn't because I, I know what it equaled and what it saw. I wouldn't change it for the world. But what my mum and dad did to help me give me a better upbringing by sending me to a, going, going to a private school. Okay, I was living a double life and it doesn't matter, but I had the facilities to go and play my sport. I had the opportunity to meet amazing people around me who I'm friends with today, who have all been successful in their areas, whether they've become a lawyer or a sports lawyer, they've become a, whatever they've become, you know, and, and it's the contacts that I met being at that school. It also kept me off the Kept me on the straight and narrow as well. <laughs> Going to a private school instead of you could have yeah. gone the other way. I could have gone the other way quite easily. Yeah, quite easily. Just because of the people you're exposed to in the world, you know. Absolutely. That world. But yeah, mum and dad, you know, they got they, they taught me uh, lots of things. Gave me lots of gifts, wisdom, and and discipline. Go up and get up and go. If you want to do it, go and do it. If you want to go and do it? Go on, go and go for it then. Yeah. You know, so they, they yeah, a lot of freedom. But definitely, mum and dad, hundred percent, and they're lovely. Did you feel pressure because of, because of their lives and the fact that, you know, they kind of had made something out of their lives and done well and they were grafters, they were hard workers. Oh, yeah. Did you feel a bit of pressure to continue that, no. that theme? No, you no, didn't. No, no pressure whatsoever. They weren't educated. They weren't, oh, go to uni, pressure's on uni, you must go to uni. There was no, there was no pressure on me whatsoever. They just wanted you to be happy and they, they created wanted me to opportunities. Be happy. They wanted me to be happy. They knew that I wanted to, I wanted comforts. I wanted a comfy bed. I wanted curtains. I didn't want any smells of dirty kitchens coming through. I, I wanted silence. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> they knew what I wanted. And, you know, I've, I've been laser focused for, for, for many years on knowing that if I want something, I'm going to go and get it. And I've got no problem. Like for the last 20 months, I've worked harder in the last 20 months than I have done for 10, for 15 years, every day, every day, churning away, getting 1% closer to do, finishing this course, getting this uh, Eventful Entrepreneur podcast up where people, it's just spreading around the country virally at the moment. People mm. are really enjoying it. Yeah, we'll link to it, of course, in, yeah. in the show notes. Yeah. And, but it, it kind of excited you again. It gave you that buzz again and it kind of gave you a reason to amazing not get back buzz. in the game, but just, you know, kind of. Well, when you're semi-retired, I'm still on it. My mind's still on it, but my mind is just on Bournemouth Sevens. My mind is that it's a well-oiled machine. My mind is that the team have got it under control. I'm on the end of all... I don't email. I don't use email. So I'll run all my businesses off WhatsApp. You don't use email at all? No. That must be really nice. It's lovely. Why do I want another channel where someone can contact me? With hundreds. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't yeah. know when they've read my email, if I was going to send them an email... They may receive it and go, oh, I'll deal with that because they're playing a mind game of, oh, if I leave it a little bit longer, it might look like a, um, I'm not that bothered about doing a deal or yeah. No, I'm not into that. They give me, if anyone sends me a message, here's my mobile number, call me or drop me a WhatsApp. Mm. Double tick. I know when you've read it. Mm. You know when I've read it. And the communication's there very quickly. Simple. We both know where we stand. It's yeah. simple. And honest. And honest and straight. Yeah, I like that. I'd mm. like to cut email out. <laughs> I get a lot There's of too many channels. <laughs> There's too many channels you've got. Yeah. You've got... Instagram, you got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got LinkedIn, you got emails, you got all these other things going on. I'm simplifying life and going, right, if we're going to do a deal, we're going to do business, let's do WhatsApp. 
Let's meet up. Let's have a conversation. Yeah, let's keep it real. Let's meet people. Let's Absolutely. have the connection. And don't get me wrong. All my staff are all I need. And once I've done my bit, it then gets passed down for the for the contracts or whatever. It may Other be. people use email, yeah. but you just no. I choose, not, I choose not to. I didn't ask you about your clothing business, and I'm aware that you know we've been going, we've been running for quite a while here. But um, can you touch on it really quickly? Because you started a clothing business from yep. scratch. Another kind of again a pioneer in creating a new category. Yep. Do you mind touching on it really quickly? Yeah, no problem. 2008, Bournemouth Sevens, invested a lot of money under serious financial pressure. 2009, under more financial pressure because we wanted to improve the festival. So we had the festival cost us even more to put on. 2010, it cost even more under more financial pressure. And then I saw the idea, of, I, I got approached one day from a, from a sportswear brand called Stash. And Stash knew that we had um, copious amounts of teams coming to our festival. And they said, could you, they came down for a meeting, could you give us 70 grand and we'll give you a shareholding within the company? And I was like thinking, I can do this myself. Mm. And I looked at the business model, completely naive, looking, going to factories in China, Pakistan, India, researching, researching, researching. I knew your Canterbury's, your Nikes, your Addis, your Samurai's, your all these brands out there, that the, the business model was broken because what they were doing was they had loads of sales staff on the road going to rugby clubs or universities and getting a 100 grand deal or 50 grand deal or 30 grand deal and they were had lots of account managers and the margins were low mm. i was thinking well i mean i've got at that time in 2000 and we launched in 2000 it was two years of research and development two years that's a long two time years of research and development before we launched just like we've done with vent crowd now yeah so there wasn't anything that i didn't know about it I went through all sorts in that period. I had court cases. I had um, dealing with Chinese factories, dealing with Indian factories, people who kept the money, who had, we had to get the money back. Yeah. Have a listen to episode seven of The Eventful Entrepreneur, anyone who's interested in this story, because I told the complete truth what we went through. Of the clothing, yeah. Of the clothing yeah. brand, Viper 10 yeah. Sportswear. Anyway, cut a long story short, I knew that the, that if we could create a digital brand, that people could go online, design their own kits and hoodies and everything else online, and then they knew what the price was. I knew our competition would go to China and do a hundred grand's worth of kit bespoke, send it back. It took twelve weeks for a university or a sports club or a rugby club or a netball club to get their kit on the shipping containers. On the shipping yeah. containers on the yeah. water. I was like, right, I need to beat this model. I found a factory in Lithuania who could do it in four weeks. That's a quick turnaround. Quick yeah. turnaround. Done a deal with a factory in Lithuania, English speaking, mm. four hours landed if you wanted to fly. They were think they were four hours behind as well or front, I can't remember what it was now. But we learned so much and all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, we're onto something. I found a niche in the market here. We could be the pioneers. So what we did in 20, before we launched 2012, do you ever remember on the Nike website, there was a thing called Nike ID. Yeah. You could design yeah, your own yeah. trainers online, yeah. put in yellows and greens and blues and put your initials on. I got a real clever friend of mine at the time said, right, can you create an online kit designer? Mm. So people can go online and design their rugby kits or netball dresses or their hoodies or whatever it is for the university. And that's what we did. So you could customize, you go and design your team yeah. kit. hundred percent. So we didn't need any salespeople on the road. So I'd be paying a salesperson 30, 40 grand plus a car, plus their petrol money, plus their mobile phone. And it all added up. And yeah. we took that out of the equation to beat the industry mold. Get it quicker to people, Absolutely. directly to people, give them control. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was a huge win. And we created, at that time, we had Lewis Moody, who was the England 
captain at the time. Yeah, I remember him well from watching all those England rugby games. Absolutely. And he's one of my ushers and one of my best pals. Right. Okay. So he was contracted with Nike at the time. Mm. And he'd just taken England to the World Cup in 2011. I said, Lou, we're building this sportswear brand. I'd love you to be an ambassador and a shareholder. He said, mate, went to Penny Hill Park where they all went trained, where they all trained, showed him all the stuff we'd done. He tried it all and was like, oh my God, this is amazing. He left his night contract and come over as our uh, main ambassador for Viper 10. That's amazing. He left his contract without telling them. They found out because he was on the front page of a magazine somewhere wearing all Viper 10. Wearing Viper yeah. 10. They're like, hang on a yeah, second. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. having him on board was great. Lots of photo shoots. We had the England netball captain, Pamela Cookie, on board as our ambassador as well. Mm. And it just worked. We created something fresh. We disrupted the market. That's moldy market. They've been there for 20 years. We're disrupting it. So traditional, the clothing market. I mean, that was my kind of first business, not not team kit, but like snowboarding outerwear. And, you know, mm. yeah, we had to manufacture in China. I, I was really, really young at the time. And, you know, yeah. you had to you had to pay for the stuff in advance. Mm. You had to pay a lot of money to get mm. it manufactured. And then you'd have it coming over on the ships, just yep. like you described. And I remember one year, oil prices spiked. The ships, shipping companies, without telling anyone, decided to run on only one engine. Yep. And it added an extra two weeks and we had to have stuff on the docks yep. by a certain date. And yep. it was, yeah. So there are a lot of things that can go what wrong. What a hassle. Then you've got to pay tax, you've got to pay duty. They can hold all your stock in the ports. You're dealing with Chinese communication. You're dealing with different time zones. You're dealing with factory yeah. owners that might not be telling, might tell a few porkies that say they get it to you in a certain time. Everything went on and we built that business up from 2012. We launched and we were yeah. lucky because we had Bournemouth Sevens Festival. So we had 400 teams who'd be buying kit from us, dropping yeah. three grand a team or whatever. So the business model worked. So you kind of had the market in Beautiful. place. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. We're, com we're promoting and marketing to all these teams all across the UK for our festival. Yeah. At the same time, we're doing exactly the same for a sportswear brand. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a one-stop shop for us. Yeah. And in 2018, we got a phone call. Again, a random number. I was hungover. Been out Saturday night with the wife and we had a big dinner party somewhere. So I said to my wife, I'm going to bed now. Walked up the stairs, phone rang. And you know when you're hungover, you think, oh, I can't be bothered to answer that. I don't know who that is. I don't know what num random just number. Just lock it off. Just lock it off. And it rang. And it must have rang like nine or ten times. And I thought, I'll just take it. Hi, is that Dodge, Roger Woodall, uh, owner of Viper 10? I was like, yes. He said, I've been watching your brand for three years. I'd like to buy it. Well, and I, just, I, I literally said, is that Chris, my best mate? I said, are you taking the piss? Chris, is that you? <laughs> he went, no, no, no. I'm not going to say his name, who it was. He yeah, said, yeah. I said, I said, can you do me a favour? Send me some more information so I know your website, who you are. He, he sold it to me. He said, we're a £30 million company. We're this, 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 this. It works well for our business model to slot in your brand. Would you be willing to sell? Presumably it was a competitor or... Related field, related related field. Yeah, not not direct competitor. Not direct competitor. Related field. He wanted to. Slide. He had all the. Con they had all the, anyway. So they. Yeah. He sent um, some information through the next day. He was the real deal. Wow. So I said, Look, I don't want to, to sell it. But if you make me an offer, he made an offer. I said, if you stick with the offer, we won't change it. We'll shake each other's hands, and I'll accept. So it was a good enough offer for you, for we, you to hundred percent. Yeah. Take it. And he made an offer we couldn't refuse. Spoke to the yeah. staff. Made an offer we couldn't refuse. Sold. Hundred percent. Done a deal where it's hundred percent no earn out. So I didn't have to stay with the business. So that was it. You could literally just shake hands. Shake hands. Eight months of lawyers, accountants, everything else that went on back and forth, back yeah, and forth, yeah. back and forth. And the deal was done. Yeah. And then you walk away and you get to start something fresh. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of the part of the deal was uh, you can't compete with us if by setting up a new sportswear brand. Yeah. I said, trust me, I've done that, completed that journey. Scratch I will never go itch. back, scratch the itch. I will never, ever compete. Yeah, I had one of those for three years when I sold my um, snowboarding brand. Mm. And, but I was really happy to not be doing it anymore, yeah. I have to say. So I didn't think of doing one. Um, last question. Yep. Did you take a year off social media? I heard you say it somewhere. If you did, why did you do that? 
Um, it was to simplify my life even more. It was in year, I can't remember what it was, 19 maybe. And I was just seeing from 2008 when Facebook came about, I had to be on social media all the time for, for the brands. And then Instagram came along and then LinkedIn came along and then da, 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 da. everything was coming. It was just like, wow, this is nuts. This is consuming. This is, this is, and I started to see a real different side to social media. I said, you know what? I'm going to take a month off social media. So that's what I did. And I loved it so much. Makes you happy, doesn't it? It makes you happy. Yeah. Because you're not consuming. You're not flicking. You're not wasting time. You're not seeing what other people are doing. I don't care what other people are doing. The people that I really care about are on my WhatsApp groups. Yeah. And you're talking to them. And you're talking to them and you're meeting up with them and you're having proper convos. You're having good food. Yeah. And um, did it for three months. Then I, then six months and nine months, I was like, this is amazing. And then did it for 12 months. And then the pandemic hit. And I said, you know what? What got back on it started from scratch and went public. Hmm on Instagram and yeah and now the, you're using it as a different using it different as, tool. absolutely yeah with strategic use I imagine you're not just kind of like on there to kind of definitely scroll not. through stuff, and definitely stuff. You're, you're sharing your message yes yeah yeah so on that note where can people find you obviously I'll share links to everything we've discussed mm. and all of your links anyway but where's the you know, if people want to find you follow LinkedIn. you LinkedIn LinkedIn and Instagram are my two go-to's okay you get me on LinkedIn Roger Woodall or Dodge and on Instagram it's Dodge Woodall Okay. And of course, listen to the podcast, The Eventful Entrepreneur. So Dodge, thank you so much for being on the Torchbearer podcast. I've really, really enjoyed this so conversation. And You're a very good interviewer. Thank and, you. And um, what I like about this is a proper deep conversation. And I've chosen not to do many podcasts since I've done my own podcast. And a friend, a mutual friend of ours did an intro. I accepted, but I didn't know what I was coming into. I didn't listen to any podcasts or anything. But I have to say, you, uh, you delve deep. Uh, you're very mindful and very respectful and you've got a lot out of me today fantastic yeah. thank you so much that's that's what i was hoping for yeah and i really appreciate your time so it's been a really good one and yeah. uh, i know everyone's going to enjoy this cool good man ollie take care take care